0: Welcome to the Armani Talks Podcast. I'm your host, Armani Talks. In this podcast, I'm helping you level up your communication skills every Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. If you're looking to improve your public speaking skills, creative writing, social skills, look no further. Every Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you'll be delivered a new video, so hit that subscribe right on below, hit that bell notification, and stay updated. Today, we are back for part three, of Unapologetic Truths with Harsh Strongman, Life Math Money. What's good, homie?
1: I'm well, Arman. How are you?
0: Doing good as usual, my friend. You know what's really good about this little series we have going on? The friendship that we have is one of those friendships where we connect with each other every now and then. Anytime you need something, I got you. Anytime I need something, you got me. But we don't have to talk every single day. So when we record these episodes, it feels like I'm catching up with you, which gives us a lot of unique topics to talk about. I've been having a lot of fun doing these. What about you?
1: Likewise, Arman. It's always good to connect with you. I think you are a very intelligent person and I value our friendship very much.
0: Awesome. So I have a funny little story regarding Unapologetic Truths Part 2. So by the time we were done, I gave all the audio files to my audio engineer. He did all the technical stuff like clean up the background noise, uh, sync our voices, all that technical stuff. Mm -hmm. By the time he gave it back to me, I had to now listen back to it in order to put the timestamps in. And it's much different listening back to it versus actually participating in it. And as I was recording the timestamps, I was noticing that word talking about one topic, one moment, and we're talking about a completely different topic the next moment. One moment, we're talking about weightlifting. Next minute, we're talking about masculine, feminine energy. Next minute, we're talking about Jordan Peterson. So it's very, very hard to predict what is going to be brought up in these episodes. And I think that's what allows us for much more leeway and much more creativity. Did you notice that?
1: Yes, I think we discuss a variety of topics, and it's always good to have someone you can talk to about more than one thing.
0: Absolutely. So, I was going through some of your tweets recently, and I screenshotted one, which I thought was really unique. And you have this brilliant way of compacting an idea into one to two sentences, where sometimes it's extremely clear, and other times it leaves the reader a For imagination. And it was a tweet regarding most people are atheists, but they uh, just pretend like they're not. Uh, Do you recall that tweet? Yes. I thought that was a very interesting tweet. And I was actually having a discussion uh, regarding this with someone with a lot of people who are not practicing any form of spirituality, religion, and they don't have too much interest, or if they do have interest, not much practicalities. Did you want to break that tweet down a little?
1: Yes. So when people say that they follow a religion, let's say that they call themselves a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian or whatever other religion they follow, 99% of them don't actually follow that religion in the sense that they don't even know what the main values of that religion are, what that religion tells them, the stories of that religion. They just call themselves a follower of that religion simply because that's what they were told to do when they were children. If you had to ask, say, the average Hindu about the Ramayana, he will just have no idea. He will give you some story that he's seen on TV or watched a movie about, but as some, I, I recently read the actual Ramayana and I used to be one of these, these people. I used to think that I know about Hinduism, but I didn't actually know much about it. But when I read the Ramayana, I read Bhai Bikti Proy's translation of it. It's a, it's an unabridged translation. So the guy just took Sanskrit and he translated it to English. So it is not an interpretation, it's a direct translation. And the Ramayana is actually a very interesting, a very wisdomful book. It has a lot of red pill truths that are extremely controversial to say today. For example, a sage tells Ram that women's love is extremely fleeting that they are quick to follow people who are in prosperity but who, when the prosperity goes away women will just leave you and that is mm. something that people don't really know about hinduism like they don't really know the real truths the real wisdom behind it they just call themselves a follower of that religion it's like it's like someone who can't even lift 50 60 kg saying that he's strong like that doesn't you're just saying it like you're not actually it I, I think a lot of people are atheists in the sense that they don't really believe in a god or a religion they just think they do because just just because you say something does not make it true if i say i'm a trillionaire and i keep saying it to everybody it doesn't mean i'm actually a trillionaire It's a lot like that. People will, they just like to pretend that they are religious or they like to pretend that they follow a religion. They like to pretend they believe in God, but they don't actually do it. They don't follow it in any way. If you take a lot of women in the West, for example, the Western society has a lot of promiscuity. A lot of these people will call themselves Christian. And if you actually read the Bible, it's completely against promiscuity. So how can you both be a Christian and be promiscuous? You can't. You can be either or. So if you are promiscuous and then you say you're a Christian, you're just pretending to be a Christian. You're not actually a Christian, or even or Muslim or a Hindu or whatever. So people they're just playing a make believe game. They pretend to follow the religion. They go to church or whatever they do. They go to the temple, but they aren't actually members of that religion because they don't even know what the religion is about. They just interpret it to be whatever is convenient to them.
0: Right. And why do you think this pretending goes on for? Because wouldn't it be easier if they're just like, oh, I'm not anything, rather than putting on the charade? Do you think they're saying that there's something in order to fit into society? Or what do you think your interpretation is?
1: I think a lot of it has to do with something that they have been repeating ever since childhood so they believe it to be true but they are not actually it so for example if i start saying i'm a trillionaire and i was it's something i'm, I'm delusional enough to believe myself but i am not actually a trillionaire. it's a lot the situation is very similar they are delusional enough to think that they are actually members of that religion but they are actually not
0: so it's just a lack of knowledge. Gotcha. And yeah, I, I agree with that 100% where there's a lot of individuals that are practicing, but they're very low-key about it. They don't say it. And then there's another group that's very vocal, and they're like, look at me, look at me. And they're the farthest from practicing. And it just to give you an example. depends on
1: the religion, actually. There are certain religions out there, and I don't want to name anybody. But some religions are very strict about converting other people. And in their religion, the, their books will actually say things like, you have to either convert or kill and things of that sort.
0: Right. So in, in, in,
1: for members of those religions, if they are being low-key, then maybe they're not following their religion. Mm. I, I haven't fully formed my thoughts about this, but I remember a friend of mine telling me that terrorists believe that they are truly following the religion because a lot of the religious texts actually encourage those terrorist activities. And when people say that terrorists don't have a religion, they don't know what they're talking about because their book actually says that.
0: And a lot of it does come down to interpretation where have you ever seen one of those situations where a very popular book nowadays, different people read it and different people get a completely different interpretation regarding it. And I think one of the, things that you were bringing up earlier was the red pill, for example, where some people have a certain perception regarding the red pill, while another group have a completely disparate perception, and you're trying to align the two, like which one is right, which is wrong. Did you ever notice that where when something becomes extremely mainstream, people's perceptions regarding it and interpretations seem to follow completely different spectrums? Yes,
1: but I think that that only applies to a small portion of the issues. As far as I have, I've only read the Ramayana for now. But most of the knowledge in it is pretty clear. It is not completely up to interpretation. What happens is that people don't want to believe certain things, or they they just don't want to follow a particular part of whatever the book says, and that's completely fine. You know, even I don't follow everything, and I have my disagreements with the book, but. The reinterpretation, the interpretation thing is people just want to cop out. That they want to claim that they're following their book completely, but they're not. So they want to interpret it in a different way. For example, there are certain... So Abrahamic religions, from what I know, aren't very favorable to homosexuality. They don't appreciate it. And some of them actually call for their deaths. And now you will have reinterpretations of those abrahamic religions where being gay is suddenly okay and it's people want to do something and now they're reinterpreting the book or you know they're basically trying to create a false idea that it's okay just to say that okay i am both a follower of this religion but i do something completely else that is the book says it's wrong But I do it anyway, and I interpret it in a way that the book is complicit with it, if you get me. Mm -hmm. So they're rereading the book to their convenience. In that case, if someone wants to do something that their book does not agree with, then they should just not follow the book or just say that, okay, I'm only partially following it. I think people just just want to say that, okay, I am a complete member of XYZ religion or way of thinking. But I edited that way of thinking to fit me.
0: Right. Now, let me ask you a question.
1: Wait, I just want to clarify something before we go on. I I might have sounded that it's one everyone should follow religion. I'm not saying that. I think a lot of the things in the religious books are not applicable to the modern world, especially the ones related to terrorism or conversions or things of that sort. I'm just trying to make the point that people will reinterpret religion just to suit their own needs. It doesn't actually change what the book says. Like you're just lying to yourself and everyone else. So to maintain peace or whatever other thing, but at the end of the day, you're lying.
0: Gotcha. And you don't have to go too detailed with this, Harsh, but in your day-to-day life, how much uh, practicalities would you say a belief or just an experience in a higher power? has for you any practical benefits that you can spot out in regards to your business your personal life ethics etc
1: i wrote an article once and the article was titled the usefulness of believing in god and i will summarize it for you the thing is that when people if you take atheists for example atheists will often say that your beliefs are illogical and there is no god and you're basically delusional but they don't see the advantages of believing in God. And I will give you a major advantage. Whenever you have a situation in your life that you don't have any control over, your brain will obsessively focus on it. You will actually have worry and it'll be very difficult to get thoughts out of your head. But if you believe in God, or at least on some level, think that you believe in God, or even if you force yourself to believe in God, You can then offload those things on the abstract concept of a God. So you can say, okay, I can't control this. So it's in God's hands. So I I can stop thinking about it now. So whatever God will do would be final and I have no control over it. In many cases, that's what happens. In many cases, for example, if you're fighting a court case, you don't have control over what the judge will say unless you're paying him or something. So in 99% of cases, you are just some guy and you have no control over what third parties will do to you, or if you're in some situation, you don't have direct control over how that situation would turn out, and you don't want to constantly be worrying or thinking about it, so you can offload that event's responsibility to God. So you can say, okay, God will handle this for me, and then you can move on and focus on other things. If you're an atheist, you can't do that, then you have to reason yourself out and... Often that is not possible because we are not rational creatures, we are emotional creatures. So there is one advantage of believing in God right there. There are also certain other advantages. For example, have you ever been in a situation where you were so overwhelmed that you might have just given up, but your faith in God or whatever other supernatural thing kept you going? That happens to many people. For example, if someone's son or child dies, and they're very depressed, people will often use God as an anchor to get themselves back into society and not go insane.
0: And it's a very unique point that you just made because a couple of months back, I actually dropped a video on my YouTube channel called Public Speaking and Faith. And at first glance, when someone looks at that, they may be like, Huh? What does public speaking and faith possibly have anything to do with one another? And for me personally, firsthand, I've seen a lot of people that were extremely confident start feeling terrified before speaking in front of 300, 400 people. And they were so scared to a point where you could see their knees trembling, where their mind, you could tell was running, their eyes were darting all over the place. And they just didn't know what they were going to do. Now, in a situation like that, if you want to intellectually break it down on why you shouldn't be scared, good luck, because your mind is racing so fast that under that level of fear, being extremely rational is going to create more problems than not, because it's a cause and effect. You're going to be like, I shouldn't be scared for this reason, but I should be scared for this reason. But if I solve this, then a new problem presents itself. So the summary of that video was basically me saying that you need to be dependent in order to become independent. And what that basically means is that you need to give this power to something or just away. And as you give this power away, where you're not trying to hold on for every last bit of uh, control, you surprisingly feel more bold. So I believe God starts to make a lot more practical sense Especially when you're under fear, when your heartbeat is racing extremely fast, your knees are buckling, and you're physiologically feeling something that intellect alone cannot solve. So that's just my personal experience with it, where I've seen the most fearful individuals just instantaneously with fate, change their paradigm, and that spark of inspiration is all it took for them to get through a 10-minute speech. And now they surprise themselves. So for me, I mean, I definitely see practical benefits of it, and it's unique hearing your perspective as well, where you also factor in the this person being able to assimilate back to society after a heartbreak of some sort.
1: I think your example is very relevant here. Are you familiar with war cries? Often, you will find that people have had in the past war cries like victory to the gods." or in the name of God and things of that sort. And in fearful mm-hmm. situations, for example, if you are someone who has to pick up a spear and a shield and go to war and possibly die in it, you cannot reason yourself into being strong about it. You, you, cannot, you cannot say, okay, I'm outnumbered 10 to 1. I'm going to go to this fight and I'm going to die here. And if you are just a rational person, you don't believe in God or any others. You don't think that there's anyone watching over you. You will not have as much faith in yourself because rationally you will know that you're going to die here. But people who do believe in God, they have an upper hand here. They can say, okay, God will help me. I'm I'm going to kill all these 10 people tomorrow. And you will probably be stronger. You will have more confidence simply because you were irrational. I don't think being rational all the time is an advantage. Sometimes you just have to be irrationally bold, especially when you're going to fail so you can give give it your best shot.
0: Right. And to add on to that, I believe there's 100% a role for logic and I believe there's also 100% a role for irrational faith, which allows you to create something. For example, the Wright brothers What they were trying to do at that time is not logical by any means. However, the imagination portion of the human being is capable of synthesizing new ideas. And imagination and faith, in my opinion, work hand in hand. They start to amplify one another. So the innovators are the individuals that dream big. And through that process of dreaming, you got to actually use some logic to now reverse engineer everything. So those people who try to pit logic strictly against faith and faith against logic, which is nowadays a very popular niche, I see it on YouTube all the time, where a lot of new age people are just choosing one side or the next, I believe they're missing the bigger picture. I believe it's sort of like a coin where there's heads and tails, and it's all about priming the mind to see the edge of the coin rather than trying to identify with one side on which one is better, uh, one or the other. What do you think? I think irrationality and rationality are both
1: tools, and nobody is ever going to be 100% rational. There are times where being irrational has its uses. So I think that taking sides about it, unless... Taking sides about it is a lot like saying hammer is the only tool to use and you should never use a wrench, when it really depends (laughs) on what you are trying to do.
0: Yes, and one of the examples I give is harsh. Imagine that you're waiting in a bus stop. It's 2 a.m., it's dark, you're in a very, very dangerous neighborhood. No one's around you. As you're waiting and waiting and waiting, eventually, a man in a black hoodie comes and he's holding onto a machete and he comes to you and asks, which arm would you like to keep the right arm or the left arm? In fear, you're going to be like, man, I want to keep both because it's ridiculous to just be like, Oh, well, since I'm right-handed, I just want to keep my right hand and forget <laughs> my left hand. All right. It's like both have a purpose and it's all about creating that synergy and understanding your balance. So I'm glad uh, we were able to talk about that. And we already started off with a bang, which you know, allows me to transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to have, if you have any more additional points on that. I think it's the, when you bring up Wright brothers, I find it very
1: interesting how far society and technology has come in the past 100 years. About a hundred years ago, we did not have something as simple as antibiotics. We didn't have internet that we are all using now. We didn't have phones. I don't even think we had proper TV. We didn't have TV 100 years ago. So 100 years ago, life was completely 100% different to what it is today. Maybe When when were airplanes invented? I I don't know the year, but I'm pretty sure that the commercial aircraft is more recent than 100 years ago. Just let me check.
0: Sure, I think you're right as well
1: So the Wright brothers their first flight happened on I think 1903 1903, so about 100 years ago the first commercial aircraft, let me check this So in 1914, we had the first scheduled passenger airline service. So about 100 years ago or so. So in the past 100, 150 or 120 years, we have had so much development that we did not have before. I think even petroleum is 150 years old, if I'm not
0: wrong. Yeah, and we've been progressing at rapid rates, which is something that's gone unnoticed I saw a tweet of yours where one day I don't know if you recall this but you got extremely curious about magnets
1: you remember that day yes I remember I have Was there always been why? curious about magnet, magnets I just never got the answers that I've been asking about it why, why do magnets work why do they attract each other and so far what I've understood from reading Wikipedia and other people's responses is that the electrons in all the ma- atoms in a magnet spin in the same direction and that somehow causes everything to be sucked towards it. So looks like everything is a magnet in its own way. So everything is attracting everything else. Like all matter mm-hmm. is attracting other matter. But in a magnet, so in a regular piece of, let's say a regular pl- piece of plastic, all of these particles are at random locations. So they kind of cancel each other out. So if one part one particle is spinning in the rightwards direction, the other one will be spinning in the left. Or it, it just is a little bit jumbled and it doesn't does not, does not produce any strong amount of gravity towards it or attraction towards it. But in a magnetic in a piece of a magnet, it's apparently all aligned well enough to amplify the gravity of the magnet and that's how it works i'm not an expert in this it's something i've been I've, I've always wanted to know why does it do it though like why let's say these particles are spinning in the same direction why is it pulling things to to it and why is it only pulling certain things to it
0: mhm and that's that element where now you want to question the part of life in it where i recall i think you're getting maybe a little agitated because a lot of people were just giving you formulas they're saying, oh, well, magnetic field, this, this formula, that formula. I believe you're asking a much deeper question about the why rather than the what.
1: Yes, people tend to describe the issue in different words. So if you ask something, why is a magnet pulling? They'll give you like, because of this formula, like this formula says this. And that that's not true. Like the magnet is not pulling things because someone made a formula. Someone made a formula because he saw the magnet pulling things. So the formula describes what the magnet is doing and how much the magnet is doing it with the number. But it doesn't actually give you the reason why magnet is doing something. For example, okay, the Earth is pulling all of us down at 9.8 meters per second. But why is Earth pulling us down? I don't know that, but I want to know that. I want to know why. What is so special about the matter we have that it's pulling us towards it? And the formula doesn't cover that. The formula just says the speed of it being pulled down is this, (laughs) or the direction is this. It's downwards towards itself and not away from it. But there is no reasoning behind it. I don't know why it's doing it. It's just something you're supposed to accept. Like, okay, matter pulls other matter towards it. But no one has been able to explain why. And that is something I would really like to know.
0: Yes. It's actually... Some, it reminds me of a situation from a couple of years back. So a couple of years back, uh, in one of my roles, I was working with night vision a lot, mm-hmm. where I was working with this one company who creates uh, cars with night vision within it, so s- their uh, customers, they can drive at the nighttime. And as I was shadowing them, I started to become extremely curious, because And night vision in itself is something that's extremely magical. You could either fire off certain rays from the electromagnetic spectrum, excite the molecules, and then capture it. Mm -hmm. Or you could just see the difference in heat. Anyways, I don't want to go too super technical with that. But the part that got my curiosity was the electromagnetic spectrum, where once they bought it up, I didn't really know what it was at the time. I heard about it in my classes. But I didn't understand the practicalities. And here it was, this thing called the electromagnetic spectrum, which completely makes you question your view of life. Because as I was looking at the spectrum, which is pretty much existence as we know it, there was only a small sliver in that spectrum that human beings can see. And that's known as the visible light. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the spectrum, we cannot see. For example, microwaves. Whenever you put food in a microwave, the average bubble thinks that the food heats up because there's a light that's on. They're like, oh, that's why the food heats up. But no, there's a thing called a magnetron that's built in the microwave that once it starts spinning, it starts shooting out a thing called microwaves, which are a part of the electromagnetic spectrum. What I find baffling is that I can't see these microwaves. It's invisible, yet it's having a tangible effect on my food. That's one example. Another example is a couple of years later, I started this Bluetooth beanie business. And by the way, folks, I don't recommend starting that business because people people, people only buy beanies when it's the winter. Your business will fail when it's the summer. Uh, anyways, when I had that Bluetooth beanie, I saw it. Speaking to my phone, basically, because you have to connect it. Mm -hmm. And that's what Bluetooths are radio waves, another part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And once again, we cannot see it, we cannot touch it, yet it's producing a real life effect in my physical reality. So that's when I started questioning how much of the things in this world are we not seeing and we're taking for granted? So I believe that was my moment. And it reminded me of you when you got extremely curious about the magnet.
1: Do you know to answer? We wanted to know the deeper. There's a lot of things that, as you said, are not visible to us because our eyes can only see a small portion of the spectrum. The visible spectrum is very small and we only have three cones. If you, for example, I think bees can see ultraviolet light. Ultraviolet light is invisible to humans, of course. So. When you see an ordinary flower, often these flowers will have beautiful patterns on them, but those patterns are only visible to ultraviolet light. So if you Google flowers in ultraviolet light, you will find that there are many plain looking flowers that actually have some beautiful pattern on it, but humans can't see it because we can't see ultraviolet light, but bees and some other insects can see it. So there are many things that we are, in fact, missing out of. And I think, do you, are you aware that our skin can feel things that are much smaller than our eyes can see? So if there's like a grain of sand that's very, very small, you will be able to feel it on your finger, but you won't be able to see it. Our vision hmm. is not as sharp as, say, a hook. So even in that sense, we are quite limited. Our senses, that is our sight, our sense of taste, our sense of feeling, our hearing, are all limited to certain spectrums. And there are many things that we can't see, we can't hear, we can't feel, maybe. For example, there are birds. Birds can feel the magnetic pull of the earth. That is a bird, for example, if a bird has to fly north, it just knows which direction north is. We don't know that. Like, as a human, you don't know which direction north is. There are many animals who instinctively know where north is. I've also heard that before an earthquake comes, often dogs and other animals will clear out of that area because somehow they can tell there's an earthquake coming, but humans don't. We lack that sense. There are also noises that we can't hear. So if you are you familiar with the dog whistle?
0: Yes, I've heard of that.
1: It's a whistle that you can blow that humans cannot hear, but dogs can hear it. So it's silent to us, but loud to them. So there are sounds that we can't hear. In fact, there are fires we can't see. There are actual invisible fires. If you burn alcohol, you can't see it. If you take hand sanitizer and you put fire to it and it's broad daylight, you won't be able to see it. You'll only be able to see it in the dark. So this is a fire that's burning really hot, but you can't see it.
0: And that's interesting because it kind of makes you start questioning which version of reality is right. Because for us, since we're humans, we're immediately going to be like, our version is right. All these other entities, their version is a lower tier. But if you're one of those curious individuals, you want to sit on this question about which version of reality is right. Because I believe that's the cheat code for curiosity. There is Some people a version are...
1: of reality. I think there is only reality
0: and there is how we experience it.
1: And any difference between reality and our version of it, it means our version is not right. I don't think there are different versions of reality. There is only one reality. And then there are incorrect interpretations or inc- partial, let me not say incorrect, let me say partial representations of it.
0: Interesting. And what do you say this has for the bigger picture? Because for running Life Math Money, you need to be a continuous learner. Otherwise, I mean, at some point, your content erodes and you just don't have anything else to say. How do you keep yourself constantly curious about the game of life?
1: I don't, I've never had to do anything special to be constantly curious. It's something that I was born with. I was always a very, very curious person ever since I was a kid. And over my life, I have had a lot of experience with business, dealing with people, experiencing new things. I've read a lot of books and I have learned enough and I continue to learn every day. And that is why my content is people enjoy my content. They find it valuable because it comes from experience, from real knowledge, and I'm not just making it up like a lot of content creators tend to do. So I think that there's nothing special I did to be curious. It was just how I was born. God made me this way.
0: Awesome. Did you know or do you notice certain people nowadays lack that curiosity? Which my theory is that a lack of curiosity leads to the victim mindset. And the victim mindset makes it much, much easier to brainwash others. Because to brainwash someone, you need to get two variables in line. You need to get letters and numbers in line. If the letters and numbers are controlled in a certain way, it's easier to paint a narrative towards a mind that's not curious versus the mind that is curious who's like, whoa, 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 I'm going to guard my mind first and I'm going to assess whether or not this is true. So my opinion is that, you know, I think you have a gift where you are curious And since you are so curious, people, you're probably like, man, isn't everyone just curious like me? And this is one of my gifts as well. Most people
1: are not curious. And I don't think it's their fault. I think that below a certain IQ or intelligence level, however you want to think of this, people are not curious or not as curious as people who are intelligent. Because when you're intelligent, you tend to see more patterns. You tend to ask more questions, and you want to learn more because it's the only thing that satiates you. It it's the only thing that stimulates your brain properly. Intelligent people don't read books to learn. They read books because they have to. It's they would get bored and they would be miserable otherwise. Dumb people have to be made to read books. So if you see dumb people in school. <laughs> And there's nothing they can do about it. They were just born this way. So if you take a dumb person from back to your school, after your school ended, most people who are below a certain IQ level will never voluntarily pick up a book to read. They would rather go out, talk to their friends, watch a movie, relax, chill, have fun, whatever. But it would not be a source of stimulation to them to have to read a book. But with intelligent people, that is not the case. Often with intelligent people, reading a book is a source of fun and entertainment and joy. They are naturally curious because they are smart. So I don't think that curiosity is killed in people. To an extent it is, but I think a lot of curiosity is just dependent on how intelligent you are if you get me I, I don't think dumb people they just lack the capacity to be curious let's see let's put it that way like they are not capable of being curious in the first place so to ask them do, to be curious is just wasting your time you will often you, see
0: these sorry go ahead do you think that fire can ever be lit in them again or no. do you think it's just good as done
1: i think for most of them you could help them a little bit you could if you show them the right way they will be a bit more curious but I don't think that an extremely... Let's say someone at an IQ level of 90 will ever be as curious as someone at an IQ level of 130. At least the average 90 and the average 130 guy, like there are obviously exceptions in every situation, but the average 90 IQ guy and the average 130 IQ guy. For example, if you take, say, math, if you take calculus, the smart person maybe he finds calculus hard but at least he's able to do it so he's curious about what are the applications of it he would want to learn more but a dumb person would not even care about that field even if it told him where it's used why it's useful he's just gonna be like i don't really care i would rather just watch tv if you look at history all the innovation in the world all of it, 100% of the innovation in the world has come from people who are in the top 1% or 2% of intelligence. If you take electricity, Nikola Tesla, cars, any major invention that changed humanity forever, all of it came from people who were in the top 1%, 2% of intelligence. And their inventions have benefited all of us. If you take Einstein's relativity, relativity has allowed us to deploy satellites, go to space, keep a track of time with with objects that are moving much faster than us. And Einstein was, of course, in the top 1% of intelligence. I think it's just how humanity is that 1% of people will bring all the innovation, but everybody else gets to enjoy it.
0: Now, out of curiosity, How do you determine who's smart and who's dumb? Are you evaluating them from the lens of IQ or do you have a different measurement?
1: IQ is a rough measure. It does not not fully encapsulate intelligence. I'm not sure if there is a way to accurately measure how intelligent someone is, but I think offhand we can say that, yeah, some person is smarter than someone else. If you take 100 people, you can very easily filter out the 90 dumb ones. Just Mm -hmm. go to any classroom in the world, any classroom out of 100 people, only maybe three, four, five of them would be bright. The rest of them would either be average and maybe 10% of them would be below average. And that is, you don't need a way to, you don't need an accurate number to measure that. You can just do that in any classroom. Every teacher knows that there are some students who are smart and some who are not.
0: Gotcha. So for myself, my perception is a little different in that regard, basically where I personally, for example, for me, I was not a good student in school whatsoever. I did my best to you know study, do all that stuff, SATs, average, uh, grades, average. For the most part, from the formal setting of school, I would be classified as a mediocre or average student at best. But I believe my intelligence actually laid somewhere else where I'm the kind of guy that wants to let consistency do the talking, let skin in the game do the talking, and let discipline do the talking. And I believe intelligence, it really comes down to finding the right compass. The reason that I hated school was because I... I wasn't learning about any topics that I was naturally curious about. And even if I was curious about it, I didn't understand the why. Like nowadays, as an older version of myself, I actually go back and revisit the subjects I learned in school, such as history, such as biology, such as psychology, because nowadays I actually have data points to refer back to. But if you were judging me by my formal education self, that version of Armani, you'd be like, man, this guy's a straight up idiot. He's not going to do anything with his life. So, I mean, my perception regarding intelligence is that you've got to find that right thing for you that you can do effortlessly, or you could see being effortless in the near future. Um, I believe your gift is your ability to process information at rapid rates and generate unique insights that others cannot normally see. I believe my gift is the ability to think on my feet, uh, the ability that I practice a lot, like storytelling skills and thinking on my feet. But my gift is not doing formal exams or anything like that. I personally still don't know my IQ score. I just want to clarify,
1: when I I said the formal exam thing, I was just giving an example. I don't think the the university and the study structure we have now, uh, that is first grade to 10th grade, is conducive to intelligent people because it bores the crap out of them by being too slow i just it's kind of a di- digression so i'll talk about that later but what i mean to say is that i was just giving an example i, I don't think that being bad in school means that someone is dumb mm-hmm. but i do think that intelligence is the main factor of curiosity even though how well you do in school is not a good way to measure intelligence because a lot of complete idiots also get good grades. A lot of smart people don't manage to get good grades. And there are, there are more factors at play to intelligence than just an academic score. But intelligence is, in my opinion, still the primary attribute of a curious person.
0: Absolutely. And I believe the two play off of one another as well, because the more you remain curious, the more intelligent that you're bound to become as well. I actually met this one uh, elder lady and I didn't meet her. Uh, She shot me a DM and she read my book, A Level of Mentality, which by the way, quick little promo, is currently out in Amazon and Gumroad. Links will be in the description box. And she hits me up and she's like, young man, uh, you helped me spark an insight that I didn't have for 15 plus years. I was like, huh? Uh, what insight was that? And she was just like, I stopped learning. And that's why I've just been so low energy for the last couple of years. But since reading, I believe, part six in your book about learning skills in a very systematic way, you you lit that fire in me again. I want to be more curious. I feel younger younger already. And mind you, this is an elderly lady who's telling me that she's actually feeling more energy by being more curious. So folks, if you're listening to this, the day you stop being curious, the day you stop learning, you will physically feel your energy levels plummet. So I actually don't know how people do it, man. I don't know how people think that they have all the answers.
1: I think people just get used to their life they work their job, they go home, they eat, they go to sleep, and they just don't have the intelligence, and sometimes they just don't have the time and attention to devote to learning.
0: Absolutely. You
1: think, think of the regular person. Okay, like if you take the average person, the average person works a job and statistics will show that he works, he makes close to the median wage. This person will have a wife and to two kids let's say two kids because 1.8 is a statistical thing so this guy's day will often look like waking up in the morning eating his breakfast going to work working for eight hours a day maybe conversing about sports or whatever coming home watching tv maybe talking to his kids for a bit talking to his wife and going to sleep and that's his life he has no even if he was intelligent, even if he was curious, he has no incentive to be more curious. People like us, even though we we are curious, we are intelligent, we have incentives to actually pursue those things because that helps us in our day-to-day life. It helps us write more. It helps us create better content. It helps us find new ideas to test. But with many people, their lives is already so settled and so unchanging and predictable that for them, it just is something that they might do as a hobby, but it doesn't actually help them that much. Their life would not change
0: too much. Yes, because as entrepreneurs, I mean, when you think about it, you pretty much get paid to be curious because your job is to either find a need in the market or propose a new need propose a new solution so if you're not uh, growing daily or finding ways to keep on leveling up then that's a huge red flag and most likely your business or whatever venture you're working on is eventually going to fail
1: there are two things that are vital to any good business one is sales and the second is r&d research and development If you can't sell, if you can't present yourself properly, if you cannot actually sell the product you're making or the service you want to sell, your company will die regardless of how good the product is. And if you will not invest in research and development, the company will die slowly. Like It will still die because the company will lose initiative to the competition. But... It's going to be a slower death. And I think most people go through that slower death of having no research and development. But because the death is so slow, they don't really notice it happening.
0: And would you say it's because research and development isn't something that's flashy and bold that people skip out on it?
1: I think sometimes people are just lazy. Sometimes they... If you have to cut expenses, what is the place you can cut expenses at that will not produce short-term problems, research and development? It will hurt the company in the long run, but over the short run, you will be fine. So people, when they are facing a cash look crunch, the first department to see cuts would be research, development, feature products, and things of that
0: sort. Got it. Speaking of business, one big factor of the Life Math Money business is the blog, which has great content on it, by the way. If you guys haven't checked out Life Math Money's blog, be sure to check it out. And as I'm looking at it right now, I noticed your last post was regarding how to get over a breakup. And I thought we could talk about that because one question that I get from a lot of male followers is regarding the breakup where they have zero clue on how to deal with it. And just a quick little story, Harsh, before we get started on this topic. So I would say around 2018, when I was first launching the Armani Talks account, there was this one guy who shoots me a DM and he's like, man, I'm in this toxic relationship. I don't know what to do. Uh, Why am I staying, even though I logically know I should be leaving? And before I was about to answer him in that DM, I was like, come back in 30 minutes because I have 19 reasons why as to why you stay. So he's like, okay. So I end up writing this thread on Twitter called, I forgot the exact name, the reasons you stay in a toxic relationship. And it ended up resonating with a lot of people. I send this thread to this gentleman and he's like, oh, wow, I could spot six reasons why right here. So I decided that I was going to turn that thread into a blog post, and I thought that was about it. Well, as more time started to go on by, Google somehow found it, and Google started to rank me for a keyword that I wasn't intending. Uh, And the keyword was, why can I I not leave my toxic boyfriend? (laughs) So suddenly, all these uh, uh, girl followers started to find me, and they started to DM me like, Armani, why can't I leave my toxic boyfriend? I was like, Man, why are you asking me? You know, not just have a like,
1: consultation program, like $100 <laughs> for 20 minutes.
0: That's what I should do because I'm giving <laughs> advice to these people. And then it was kind of cool because it introduced the Armani Talks brand to a new audience. But what I came to find out was that a lot of this advice post breakup and even during the toxic relationship, people have zero clue about. So I believe your last blog post is something that we could discuss right now. Did you just want to give a quick little summary regarding it and the inspiration behind it?
1: The inspiration behind it was simply SEO. I wanted to write more articles this year and I was looking at Samrash, and I was trying to find what people are searching for and this turned out to be a topic. So there is no backstory to this. It was simply an article for Google search. Although, to summarize the article, I think it's a very valuable article for most people. And let me open the article so that I don't miss anything. The thing is that these articles take me like a week to write.
0: So Mm -hmm. it's
1: good to refer to it if I want to talk about it. Absolutely. So what happens during most breakups is that men tend to go through this phrase of lots of sadness, loneliness, depression, or quote-unquote depression. It's fake depression. And they tend to get really down. They they lose energy and they drive to do anything. And the most important thing for a man going through this is to understand that this is a temporary phenomenon. You don't... Love is like a physiological thing. It's not whatever the movies and what popular culture tells you. Love is something physiological. It's It's a chemical response. You be around someone long enough and you will develop attachment for them. And when you are separated from someone you're attached to, it could be, say, a girlfriend or even your dog, you're going to feel extreme sadness for a while. And this is an evolutionary response. As humans evolved, we lived in tribes. And what would happen is that If, for example, you lost the support of your tribe, you would be screwed. You would probably die, which is why we are wired to feel extreme sadness when we are, say, completely alone or we don't have any friends. That's our body's way of trying to get us to go back to our friends, make up with them, and things of that sort. So what's happening here is that you're feeling those emotions that your DNA is wired to do, but it's a temporary thing. It's going to go away. So people need to realize that this is a temporary thing. Like you're, You'll you be fine Like in a week, two weeks, maybe a month or two. You'll be okay. Do you know when you lose someone in the family and you feel like very upset about it? We all have, have had this happen. All Everyone watching, at least if you're 20, 25, you had someone in the family die. And you were very upset for like a month. Most people are upset for like a week or two. Let's say you really were into love with them and you were upset for about a month. But after that, you will generally start feeling better and better and better as the weeks go by. You will not be down in the dumps for the rest of your life. So this is a physiological response to separation and you will be fine. The other thing that people should realize in a breakup is that your brain tends to catastrophize it. Like your brain will start telling you like she was one in a million, and you've lost the soulmate. You will never mm-hmm. find a better girl, and that's all crap. Soulmates don't exist in real life. Like they, they're a creature of movies, comics, TV shows. But the concept is completely made up and fake. Any see, any girl that you had feelings for is just a girl that you were around for a a while like you dated her for a while so you got attached to her and you had feelings for her she was not your soulmate or anything like that and the one in a million is also crap i'm gonna be honest okay most girls are not one in a million in fact almost no girls are one in a million most or almost all girls are one in 100 one in 200 they're just not that unique so stop stop trying to catastrophize it if you haven't lost anything ultra rare In fact, if you go out and you talk to 100 girls today, if you go out in the morning and you talk to 100 girls, I can guarantee that there are girls in those 100 girls that are hotter than the girl you broke up with, younger than the girl, smarter than the girl you ended things with, are more feminine, can cook better, make better conversation, more intelligent. And I bet there's at least one girl in those 100 who is all of the above. So no matter how hard the breakup is on you, you haven't lost something that's completely irreplaceable. There are many women out there who, are, who you would be perfectly compatible with, you would like better. And there is actually millions of such women out there. There are thousands in, who live less than 30 minutes from you if you live in a city. So the fish is all around you. You're living in the sea. So if you've lost one fish, it's just fine. Like, don't think about it too much. And the rest of the article is pretty simple things that people tend to already know, that you got to keep yourself busy, you don't stay at home, get some fresh air. The other thing you would want to do in a breakup is you would want to start seeing other girls. Like You want to go on action dates, that is you know, you want to play a sport or something and not just watch a movie where you just sit and talk or go for dinner. Like, you want to have fun with a girl, you want to do things you enjoy like football or badminton or whatever else you want to play so this will make you feel better it'll give you some exercise and it'll help you find replacements for the girl that you ended things with so don't stalk her on social media just just get away with it don't start drinking don't use drugs just just don't do it like let, let that see you will be upset for some time and you just have to accept it. Like, if you were not... If you did not have emotions, you would not be a human. And these emotions are temporary. Just go through it. Like Don't look for shortcuts. And the last thing the article talks about is... You got to learn from your mistakes. Whatever reason... Why did you break up with this girl? You need to... F- Figure out what went wrong. Maybe the girl was crap. Let's say you picked the wrong type of woman. So now you know what to look out for. You got to learn from your mistakes so you don't repeat them. Maybe you were just being too overwhelming on the girl. Maybe you were just there for her all the time. And we all know that women are not very rational. If if, if a guy is there for her, the girl is going to think this guy is a se, And she's going to be turned off by it. The women can't <laughs> handle a guy that gives them too much attention and too much time because that makes them feel this guy is extremely low value. So you got to hold frame and actually understand that women want a challenge. They don't want some guy who is sissy and looking for them all the time. Like They don't want a soy boy. Like Even the fattest feminist does not want a soy boy. She wants there's a guy called Puck, and he has a good analogy on this that is women want a bird that is wild and free and they want to catch that bird and put it in the cage and the cage is commitment they want to they want to have the ingenuity to catch a good, wild, free bird especially if other women are also trying to catch it no woman wants a bird that wants to fly into a cage by itself they don't (laughs) They don't want some needy, injured bird. They they want a wild, free, beautiful bird. So don't give her (laughs) too much time, attention. Just be a bit aloof. Don't be super available. You don't have to basically be of use to her or anything of that sort. All of them are bad ideas that society puts into you, but that does not work with women.
0: Bro, the bird in the cage... (laughs) That was too funny, man. Good stuff, dude. Now, these are brilliant insights, man. And I'm going to link the article in the description box. Anything that we're speaking about, uh, any resources are all going to be linked in the description box. And what was the name of the book you mentioned? Uh, book book something?
1: of Book. So it's on bookofbook.com.
0: Okay, cool. Now, these are very, very unique insights, Harsh, where some people are like, well, yeah, I knew that. While another group of people are like, Whoa! I never even thought about it like that. You know what's interesting is that these insights
1: are not that unique. If you pick up any old book that is a book written two thousand years ago, if you pick up, say, I think you're a Muslim, so if you pick up the Quran, or if you pick up a Hindu text, even the Ramayan has things of this sort. Even the Bible would have it. All the old books will say the same things about women. It's only that. In the past 30, 40, 50 years, we have had this feminism thing. And since people don't read, they have no idea what the past books have said, what the wisdom of their own ancestors has told them. Which is why they think that these are something completely new and why they've never heard about it before. But these ideas used to be mainstream before. People used to know these things.
0: Mm, Unique. Did Younger Harsh ever go through a bad breakup or did you uh, curve those?
1: I have never had a woman that broke up with me. It's usually me doing the breaking up.
0: Got it. And what about your friends? Did you ever see one of your friends go out of uh, control because of a bad breakup or not really? Not really. So I have I, never
1: had extremely attached friends in that sense that I, I did maybe come across people who have had this. Like I've seen some guys cry about it, but I was like, yeah, okay, I just—I like, I didn't care enough about it to spend too much time around someone like that.
0: I knew this one kid in undergrad who was poised to become this top-tier lawyer. A very uh, tiny, short little Indian kid who you would not at first glance think that this guy was a killer, but he was. A killer in terms of how he spoke he was extremely persuasive he was had this nice tonality that could build rapport very quickly and honestly the sky was the limit for him but for him he went through a very bad breakup where his girl moved she broke up with him and started dating someone like two days later and this broke this dude man where he throughout his entire life did not drink but then he became an alcoholic. He would start drinking. He would start crying. And I thought this was going to be a small little phase. Now, mind you, this happened over a decade ago. One decade later, I come to hear from different individuals that this guy is still the same. He still hasn't gotten over the breakup. And I'm like, dang, dude, that's, that's so sad because the sky was the limit for this guy. And if you saw him, you could automatically feel that presence. But then out of nowhere, nowadays, I don't think he still does law. I think he couldn't pass his exam. And it's unfortunate because his vision was not bigger than his environment. And that's just caused that spiral, which he was not able to come back from. Now, on the flip side, I see the exact opposite happen with a lot of guys as well, where after the breakup, they're 100xing themselves, and you'll see a new side to them that you couldn't predict from their past self. So that's just been my personal interpretations and experiences regarding dealing with different people and seeing how they react to breakups.
1: From what I can tell, most people who who have other things going on in their life, let's say they have a business and things that they care about, they're not that impacted by breakups. They have other things to focus on. Like everyone feels sad about it, but they don't have these spirals. I don't know why a friend went down the negative spiral. I think that someone who essentially loses the big picture of their life because of something as trivial as a breakup did not deserve success in the first place. They were just too weak. Because there are things in life that are much harder than breakups. Breakups are small things. There are things that are much, much harder. And if you're going to falter with such simple things that 99.99% of people can go through just fine, then maybe you just don't have it. You don't don't have what it takes, man. There are things that are much harder than this. If you can't even deal with this, how can you deal with the harder things?
0: And that's an unapologetic truth, in my opinion, that needs to be said. Because I 100% agree with it, where I see certain guys, for example, in these relationships for so freaking long. It's toxic. They know it. And they're starting to act extremely feminine and very out of character. And, you know, the politically correct thing to say is, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You take all the time that you need. But the real unapologetic truth is that, you know, as a man, people are not going to stop for you, people are not going to be like, oh my God, Like take all the time that you need in the real world practice. Can you have some close friends that look out for you and say, listen, man, you're going to get through this, give you some words of wisdom? Sure. But eventually what you have to do is take the accountability, accept the tough love and come back 10 times stronger. With this individual, Harsh, I mean, it's a good observation where you said that this person was probably not primed for success because if you cannot come back from a breakup, as a stronger version of yourself, and immediately you're going to go to the bottle, not for one year, not for two years, but for 10 plus years, then what makes you think that success should have ever found you in the first place? Because your character was tested and you broke apart before everyone's very eyes.
1: Yep, I think that hardships are the norm in life and you gotta be able to get through it. And I think drinking is a, it's a terrible way to deal with hardships because it just has this addictive tendency. It damages your brain, your body. It has a lot of calories and it does you no good. Like your friend, had he not drunk, maybe he would be doing much better. So the, one of the first mistakes one can make is to try to drink as a way to solve their problems. Just don't do it. Like Drinking is the worst thing you can do. I don't drink and that's one of the best things that i do the best things i do are the things i don't do that is i don't drink i don't do weed or any other drug of that sort and that gives me the clarity of mind the attention and the actual ability to solve my problems in reality instead of just drowning myself out
0: does harsh have any vices if you don't want to share it that's completely fine but do you have anything where you're like man uh, this is the one thing that, you know, I give myself some play for, or not really.
1: Not really, and I'm I'm not trying to come off as really stern, but I I have a very simple life. In the sense that I I work, I I study, I do my own things, and I don't really have vice in the sense that if if I think something is not good for me, it, I find it not that difficult to stop doing it.
0: That's a good trait to have because, I mean, from our past two conversations, you don't um, consume too much entertainment, drugs, alcohol, or any of that for that matter. And you fill your mind with books, with conversing, with networking. I would actually say, Harsh, many people don't know this about you, but you are one of the quickest people to respond back despite you having over 200,000 followers on Twitter. And I thought that just shows a lot about your character, which people may not know. They may think, oh, well, Harsh, he's he's like big time now. He, he doesn't you know, hit other people back up. But routinely, when I shoot you a message, I get a respond back in a couple of minutes to a couple of hours at times. And you're very, very prompt with that. So I did want to just give you a tip of the hat because I think that's a great characteristic to have where you're... Uh, a good networker, along with a pretty big mind as well.
1: Thanks, Arman. Only the reason you get quick responses
0: is because you're my friend. Excellent. I'm happy to hear that. And I know that you're one of those individuals who's very selective about choosing your friends. So uh, do you recall MySpace? You ever heard of that I have website heard of it, before Facebook?
1: But I have never used it. So I was very young when it was
0: popular. Okay, so MySpace had this thing called the top five or top eight friends that you could list from all your friends. So I feel like I'm in your uh, your MySpace top eight or top five, and it was funny because if you were close with someone and you didn't put them on your MySpace top five, uh, there were issues. Like friends would be <laughs> like, "I can I can't believe you didn't put me and you put Susie over me." How could you? <laughs> so, That's a so, terrible so design
1: feature for the website, isn't it?
0: Oh yeah. And uh, do you use Snapchat by any chance? No, I do not. So there was uh, so Snapchat is basically when you could shoot uh, people a quick little photo of yourself or um, a a video, and it doesn't last too long. So when Snapchat was first being rolled out, they had a thing called uh, close friends sections. So you could see who was sending who snaps, and I kid you not, bro. This broke up so many relationships because someone's, uh, let's say, Miriam is like to Billy. Why is, um, Rachel your uh, number one, <laughs> number one friend and not me? Because it basically implies that he's sending Rachel more snaps. So you could directly see who you're conversing with, and dude, man. It was breaking up so many relationships for a certain period. I thought that was a very big quirk in Snapchat that luckily they got rid of.
1: Well, that's a design flaw
0: in Snapchat,
1: but it also goes to show how degenerate society
0: has become, hasn't it? Absolutely, dude. I mean, you'll see so many different people doing what they weren't supposed to be doing. And it's just the receipts are there, basically. Do you predominantly use Twitter for personal use or any other social media for personal use or is it mainly business?
1: I don't have a single account in any social media platform that is for personal use. The last time I had a personal use account was Facebook and I deleted that six or seven years ago in 2015, I think. And even then I had barely used it for years. So deleting it was just a formality. I barely ever use any social media for personal use. I just did not care about it enough. I only started using Twitter because of Mike Cernovich and Wall Street Playboys. And I had my own blog and I wanted to promote it. And I had seen these other people use Twitter to get readers. And that's how I started Twitter. And of course, now that I'm in this business, I also have accounts and other social media. But personal use, no, I have never done it.
0: Got it. So nowadays, it's predominantly for business. Do you? I don't want to name drop. So let me just give him. I know you follow him. Actually, I'll go ahead and name drop and even shoot him a little shout out in the description box. Kyle Trouble. Does that name come up to mind? Oh, yeah. Pretty cool guy. I like him. Awesome guy. And, you know, when I was first starting Twitter, I saw him bringing up the whole concept of social media addiction. And I thought that was a surreal concept, because around the same time, another account that you follow, Victor Pride, was bringing up uh, from his blog, uh, social media addiction and those sort of concepts and how social media can not only influence your mind, but influence your body as well. And around 2018, those were the two main people that were speaking about it that I thought was very insightful. Because if you think about it, Our generation is sort of like the guinea pig era for social media. There's not 60 years worth of data to reference. We are the data. Do you have any brush with social media addiction or know anyone that had it? For
1: a while, I got decently addicted to Twitter. So when I was building LifeMathMoney's account, I would tweet 10 times a day, 15 times a day. And... That would mean I would have I would be checking Twitter every 20, 30, 40 minutes. And Twitter has this thing that you get a lot of dopamine hits very quickly. You post something, you get a like, you get a comment, and you get used to seeing the notification bar go from 1 to 100 very fast. And when I was building my account from zero to a couple 10,000 followers, I did get addicted in the sense that even when I was bored, I would find myself unconsciously opening Twitter. So I was not opening it a tweet. I was just bored and my hand would go and click the tab and, you know, it would open Twitter. It took me a while to get rid of that addiction and I'm pretty much over it. I barely check Twitter nowadays. I just schedule tweets, respond to people, but I don't read other people's tweets as much. But I have had some experience with being addicted to Twitter. But I would not say it was a negative addiction in the sense that Twitter is a business for me now. It helps me bring readers. It helps me bring sales. It helps me find more people. And the Twitter addiction can essentially also be termed as a business addiction, which is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to be addicted to something that causes you harm. And one thing to be addicted to something that Improves your life. I think for me, since I was using Twitter for useful purposes, it was not a negative addiction, but it was still an addiction nonetheless.
0: And luckily, you're able to monetize your Twitter and you're getting some practical benefits out of it. But one line that you said that should terrify some people is that your hand was just moving towards Twitter where you had the awareness to pick up on it. There are tons and tons of people that it happens to that don't pick up on it. It's just that their hand is subtly, slowly moving to the phone. And that's when they have an addiction that they have no clue that they have. No, not just the phone,
1: Arman. So what, what would happen to me is I would say, first of all, I would open Firefox. I would open Twitter. I would do my tweeting thing. I would get bored of Twitter. So I would close Firefox on my computer. And I would go away and I would open my phone and open Twitter again. And I was like, what the hell am I doing?
0: Oh, so on the desktop as well.
1: So I would use it on the desktop. I would get done with using it. And then I would open it again on my phone, which <laughs> which does not add up. It's just an unconscious response that I had just built in over so many months of using Twitter every two
0: hours got it. And that's why some people just use it on the desktop and they deleted the app from their phone.
1: I did that for a long time. But right now, the Twitter app on the phone has features that the desktop version does not have. like You can tweet audio with the app, you can make fleets and things of that sort. So the Twitter desktop app is not complete, which is why you're forced to use it on your phone. Although now I have figured out a workaround, that is to have two phones have one Android phone that you use regularly and one Apple iPhone and the Apple iPhone has a terrible user interface. So it's not something you would feel pleasant using it. The screen is too small. So you would just use it and get done with very difficult to get addicted to a phone that you don't like.
0: Got it. So you're doing some preparation work beforehand. The thing with social media, I would say is that you honestly need to know yourself because what works for some people may not work for someone else. And what other people don't even consider a problem is a massive problem for someone else. When I was a little bit younger, and there was a period when I was the vice president for my fraternity, the external vice president, which basically meant that I had to throw a lot of events and network with different people just to make sure that our fraternity was relevant. And one of the tools that was extremely big at the time with all the other peers that went to my campus. Was Facebook. So I had to manage this Facebook page. I had it connected to my personal account. And as some time started to go on by, I started to notice a lot of similar effects that you were describing, where you just get done using the tool and then you start using it again. And it's like, I wasn't even noticing when it was happening to me until a few months later, where I was thinking, huh, there's probably a small little issue. So just having that awareness planted the seed for the future, when I started the Armani Talks account, I purposefully do not follow too many people on Twitter. It's a very conscious decision because Twitter is very similar to what I do in Facebook statuses. And I understand the intent of a lot of social media companies where it's not a technology company only. It's a psychology slash sociology company as well. So I have a personal account for Twitter where, you know, I probably hang with friends, but Armani Talks Twitter is strictly for creating. That's how I use my Twitter because I personally know myself, but on Instagram and YouTube, which, you know, is a completely different interface. I subscribe to a lot of channels. I follow a lot of people because I use those applications differently. So I personally believe that a big part of curbing social media addiction is not just hearing what Harsh and I are saying. It's also about looking in the mirror and being like, how well do I know myself? Would you agree with that or do you disagree with that? That curbing social media addiction requires a whole bunch of self awareness.
1: I think it comes down to just deleting your accounts. <laughs> right to
0: just the point. Just nip,
1: nip the problem in the back. Just delete your account. That, that's what I would say if you are dealing with the social media addiction, just delete your account. Although I would Got say it. that you can use your addiction to make you money. If you're spending so much time on social media, I assume that you must be around particular communities. So how can you add value to that community and make some money out of it? You should try to answer that question and try to monetize the time you're putting in into the social media thing. It has worked well for me, Arman, and thousands of other people. You know things about whatever you know and how can you put it out there that is valuable to other people, that other people would want to pay you for. You take that skill to
0: the public.
1: Don't just consume. You need to start producing.
0: Very interesting thoughts regarding social media. So let's do a quick little transition into harshest thoughts. What would you say are a few of the very important skill sets that a person should learn in order to become a high-value person? I believe you already mentioned sales being one of it. Are there anything else? And you don't have to confine it strictly to business. It's just more so for life in general.
1: Define high-value person.
0: A person that's capable of not only... Holding themselves up, but is capable of benefiting society in monetary, emotional, or some sort of way, educational as well. So there's two birds with one stone. This person is not just a people pleaser, but this person can provide value for themselves along with other people.
1: So just to clarify, would you say a janitor is a high value person or not? I'm just trying to frame my answer accordingly.
0: I believe a janitor provides value. But let's talk about providing value at scale, where this individual has more leverage, sort of like yourself in terms of society, because you're capable of providing value at scale to multiple people, rather than one person at a time.
1: The most important traits you will need to develop is one, a high appetite to take risks, because... Anytime you attempt something at scale, there's a high chance that you will fail. A lot of times, you will have this mentality that working a job is better because you get a well-known paycheck. You You know what you're going to make next month. If you want to be successful at doing something at scale, providing value to many people, you are going to have to take a big risk, especially in the beginning. So you need to have a high risk appetite. You need to be willing to do new things. You need to be creative. The other things is that you need to have energy. So how do you have energy? You need to be in good health. You need to have the right hormones in your body. You need to be alert. So you got to eat right. You need to sleep well. You need to have a good lifestyle. And these are things that people tend to not associate with success. That But these things do matter in the background. When you are too fat or you're just, just too slow, you don't think much because of how much you're eating. When you eat a lot, your brain tends to slow down. And all of these will reduce your chances of success. So all of these things do matter. Personally, I think a high-value person is someone in good health who is able to add a lot of real value to society By producing something valuable, so there are people who do get rich by producing something that is worthless. Like if you take a politician, he can cheat everybody and get rich, but and he would many would consider him to be a high value person. But what I'm what I'm saying is that his value he's adding is not genuine value. He's just taking advantage of a position. So you want to create things. You need to be able to take the risk to actually try and create things that would be useful to other people there are social games that people play and you need to have the intelligence and the wisdom to not play them. People will, for example, when you were back in school or when you were much younger, say in college or something, people would spend all of their money to buy beautiful clothes and drink, have fun parties because it would give them this reputation. And, that reputation just feels good, but it's doing nothing for them. They're just trying to get more status in that particular group. So you need to be wise enough to not play that game because you're just draining your resources, your time, your money, and it's not giving you anything in return. So you need to have the wisdom to do that. But other than that, I think it's pretty standard. Like work hard, be smart, don't waste time, don't do dumb things, don't do cocaine, don't raise trains.
0: Excellent. I want to zone in on one of the final points you were making about the whole status games. Have you ever read the book, Signs of Getting Rich by Wallace Waddles?
1: No, I have not.
0: Uh, You should definitely check it out. Great book. I'm going to put it in the description box. And in the book, Wallace brings up two ways to get rich. One manner is the competitive manner, and the other manner is the creative manner. And I believe the competitive manner is Status games in a nutshell, where you brought up the whole politician example. And the creative method is, for example, where anyone who deals with a business transaction wins. So, just to give you an example, your product, the Twitter guide, which is a brilliant product, by the way, when someone buys it, they have the intention of wanting to improve their Twitter account and monetize it. So, no one has to technically lose for you to win in this transaction. And this is what Wallace Wattles is talking about. He says to graduate from the competitive mind into the creation mind. And that requires you to find different ways to create transactions in a way where all people are winning and no one has to lose for you to win. A positive Did you sum ever, game, yes. Yes. Do you factor in that positive sum game or is that something you've just been playing and you weren't even aware of it?
1: I have always strived to do things that bring value to me, my customers, and to the people I work with. And that is simply because, let's say that you play a zero-sum game once. Let's say that I sell you a product that just does not work as described. It does not help you. You will never buy from me again. You will... I will, you will, I will lose your trust if I, say, get into a deal with a business partner where he loses money and I make money. He will mm-hmm. not trust me again. So over the long run, playing this sort of zero-sum game is a dumb idea. Mm-hmm. People tend to do it, but people are short-sighted.
0: Yes. Creating not...
1: value for people works for both of you. It works for them because they got value. It works for you because this person now likes you more. He trusts you more and is more likely to do more dealings with you.
0: Yes. One of the other concepts he brings up is always give more use value than cash value. So back to the Twitter example, let's say I desperately want to grow my Instagram account and you're like, In in an alternate world, uh, unethical harsh, let's just picture that for a second, where you're like, gee whiz, I I just want to make money. So you try using your sales tactics to sell me a Twitter course uh, for a guy that needs Instagram. Well, in this situation, you didn't give me proper use value. Uh, But on the real world that we live in, let's say I want to improve my Twitter and you give me the Twitter guide, you give me use value things that I could actually use in a practical sense, then the byproduct of that is cash value, the money coming into your Gumroad account. So that's another unique formula that he gives where other people need to win for you to win. And then you can, you can guarantee that anytime you're getting paid even a dollar, someone had to get that use value beforehand. And if you can set up your business in that way, then it just leads to increasing life rather than you having to look over your shoulder like, geez, when when are my (laughs) skeletons going to be let out the closet?
1: You know, I have experience with dealing with someone like you mentioned. So there's a mutual fund guy I know. He sells mutual funds. He gets a commission. I trust you're aware of the business model. Yes. And every time I speak to him, he will pitch me some or the other mutual fund. And it's irrelevant whether the stock market is doing well or it's doing badly. His pitch is always that if the stock market is going down, we should invest in it because it's down and it'll go up. And if the stock market is up, it's at an all-time high, then you should invest because it's going up. So he just wants to sell you the future (laughs) (laughs) plan. And eventually he's got so tired of him that I stopped even picking up his calls. And I just don't trust him at all now. I just know that this guy is going to say whatever fills his pockets. Like I would not trust him with anything. And that is what happens. You know, when you try to just fleece people or you just don't think about the value the other person is getting, you're not being honest with them. You're, you're being dishonest. People, people can sense that if, if I was being dishonest on this podcast, people, people would know that people are not idiots. And people who are consistently dishonest, they just develop this thing where nobody trusts them anymore and they have no idea why. Like They they can't tell why because they are not self-aware enough. So they just think that they failed at business and they just lack something when they really, they just lack integrity and people can tell they lack integrity.
0: I'll give you... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. You were going to think of an I example.
1: Another example of low integrity where people just don't realize it. I was about to do a business deal with somebody and I saw them essentially pirating a book. So I asked him, Why are you pirating it? Why aren't you buying it? And he was like, Why should I pay them when I can get it for free? And Realizing that, I just I just understood that this guy does not have basic integrity. He will not pay for something he wants to use. So I, g- I scrapped a deal and I gave him a different reason. Of course, I did not tell him that I'm, I'm not doing this deal with you because I think you're a liar or I don't think you're an honest person. I gave him a different reason, but he will never know that his lack of integrity costs him business. And these in- people who have low integrity, they're just never aware of it. But it is costing them a lot in the long run. People are not stupid. People can tell if, if someone is not honest and someone lacks integrity, people can tell that. We can all tell a sleazy salesman when we meet one. So these people who think they are being very smart by essentially cheating other people, they just don't go anywhere like they they're, they will they're, they'll always be below a certain level. To be wildly successful, you need to add value to others. Other people must want to be associated with you.
0: Yeah, and these are examples of people that are chasing the cash value before the use value. They're asking questions like, how much am I going to make? Oh, yeah, uh, I got to help someone in the process as well. And that's a secondary thought, which unfortunately plants the seeds for the destruction. And I want to give you a real life example of this, Harsh. So, I wrote this one short story a while back on my email list called The Time That I Got Backstopped on Twitter. And basically, this is when I had around 11,000 followers on Twitter. And there was this one guy who had around 85 followers or so. He DMs me and he basically DMs me one of my tweets that he turned into this very nice graphic animation. And I thought that was a very generous thing to do. Just randomly out of the blue moon, he turned this tweet. Into art. And he's like, Hey man, I'm a big fan of your work. If you ever need this service, feel free to let me know. I'll give you a discount. So I was like, I don't necessarily need this service, but what other services do you offer? And he eventually said that he also offers podcast editing. So I was about to launch a podcast at that time and I thought that this guy would be perfect. I said that I'd give him a few of my tapes, see how he does. And we could start a long-term uh, partnership uh, after that. Well, as a couple of days goes on by, uh, there's this semi-big account on Twitter that pretty much starts throwing shots at me. He's like, oh, Armani talks. Easy. Uh, he's a loser. He's not a good account to follow, blah, 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 blah. And he keeps tagging my name. Uh, his main goal is to try to get me to block him, which I haven't blocked anyone yet uh, because I use it for selfish reasons. It makes me more creative. Anyways, this guy's blo- This guy is over here uh, tweeting at me nonstop. And the same guy that I was supposed to do the podcast dealing with is over here liking these tweets, over here putting laughing emojis to these tweets, and over here retweeting these tweets. And this idiot thinks that I don't see any of this because he probably thinks, oh, Armani probably blocked this account but I didn't block it, and I saw everything. The Next day, this idiot DMs me and is like, hey, Armani, when do you plan to send me the audio files over? I was like, dude, I saw everything. You must be crazy if you think I'm going to work with you again. And he was shocked. Now, imagine how much money he cost himself simply by being a scumbag. If he didn't do what he did, and let's say he did a good job, I would have given him a shout out. His 85 followers could have grown more. He could have gotten more exposure. He could have signed more deals through that. But simply due to poor character traits in my eyes, he cost himself a deal. So that's just one of my personal stories regarding it. Have you ever gotten backstabbed like that? Not really. But
1: generally, it's been my experience that it's almost always a bad idea to get into negative gossips about other people and actually partake in it in the sense that if other people are criticizing somebody, you you can just be silent or you can just take yourself out of the conversation. You don't have to laugh at their jokes, agree with them, or criticize the person just to be a part of the conversation. That is almost always a bad idea because word gets around, you know, eventually if not today then tomorrow there's, there's there's no good reason to do it you're not getting anything out of it so if this guy even if he did not like you the he could, if he had just stayed silent he would have had your
0: business but now he doesn't absolutely and that's why i believe that did you have anything else to say
1: no no go ahead
0: i believe that when you're working with certain people you need to be very mindful Luckily for me, this was in 2018 or maybe early 19, even before I launched my podcast. So this was very early on in my journey. And nowadays, when I'm working with people, I want to make sure that they have high integrity. This is our third podcast together, and we've gotten to know each other very well. And I already know that you know when I'm dealing with Life Math Money, there's not going to be any funny business. Uh, there's not going to be any weird stuff that's going on. And that's what I believe is the power of compounding relationships, because each podcast just gets easier because nowadays we don't have to you know, be super formal with each other in the beginning stages, trying to get each other's guards down, all that stuff. We put that work in beforehand. So if you could be a long-term thinker, don't just think compounding effects happens in money. Understand that it also happens in relationships and your social network as well.
1: Are you familiar you that effect? with a game called The Prisoner's Dilemma?
0: No, I haven't heard of that.
1: So I'll I'll, I'll set the stage for this and this is what you're talking about. So, uh, the Prisoner's Dilemma is a situation where let's say that you have two prisoners, okay? And the detective is trying to get one to snitch on the other. So currently they have enough of a case that if none of them snitches, they will both get one year in prison. If both of them snitch, they will each get two years in prison. So if, for example, what what the detective is saying is that I currently have enough material to get you guys in prison for one year. But if you snitch on them, like if person A snitches on person B, then person B will get three years, and because you have snitched on them, I will let you go free. So if person B snitches, he will get no prison time, but person A will get three years. But if both of them snitch, they will each get two years. Are you getting? Are you able to follow what I said?
0: Yes, I'm following the the pattern. Of could which could you saying.
1: summarize what you have understood just so that the reader gets
0: a recap? So basically, if one person snitches on the other person, their sentence is going to be lower than the uh, both people snitching at the same time. So you're basically saying that if one, like say me and you are put in this situation, if I only snitch on you, but you don't snitch no, on the me. The numbers
1: are important. Go Repeat the numbers. The numbers are important for this one.
0: So let's say I snitch on you, but you don't snitch on me. We both get one year.
1: No, if I snitch on you and you don't snitch on me, then you get three years and I get no years in prison because I've, I've snitched on you. If none of us snitches, then we both get one year. The police does not have enough to catch us. If one of us snitches, then the person who snitched does not get any prison time. He gets basically rewarded for cooperating. And the person who gets snitched on, he gets to go to jail for three years instead of one year. And if both people snitch, then they each get two years.
0: Okay, got it. Okay.
1: So if you look at this situation, you will find that in either case it's beneficial for you to for a, each person to snitch if I snitch so if, if I don't snitch and you snitch then I get three years mm-hmm. and if I don't snitch and you don't snitch then I get one year okay so there's three and right. one but you will find that in both situations if I do snitch I get lesser time so if you don't snitch and I snitch then instead of me getting one year, I will get zero years in prison. And if you snitch and I also snitch, then instead of getting three years, I would get only two years in prison. So for me, and for any, since it's symmetric for you too, it's best for both of us to snitch. But if you look at this entire stage, if both of us snitch, we would both end up in prison for two years. But if none of us snitch, we will both end up in prison for one year. And you can... Extend the same analogy to business in the sense that although it's more beneficial for us to cheat each other once, but if we keep playing the game and we keep cooperating, it's more profitable in the long run to cooperate. So, in a repeated prisoner's dilemma, cooperating is a better strategy.
0: Absolutely. And it's one thing the front end that people are probably seeing, the whole, the final podcast episode, that's what most people are seeing in the From their lens. But from the back end, there's rapport building, there's coordinating the right times, there's making sure that we're contacting each other back. A lot of moving variables, which can take even more time if you're like, man, this Armani guy's a scumbag. Or I'm like, man, this harsh guy, I got to watch out for him. Where the final product is never going to happen if the back end work is not taken care of first. And the back end is where relationships really matter that people in the front end simply cannot even fathom.
1: Agreed. I think people only see the final product, but the work that went to create that product, the amount of people who worked on it kind of is invisible. If you take take something like a technology, like a Mars rover, people see the Mars rover, it's on Mars, it's beautiful, it's doing all the science, but There are thousands of people who worked on that Mars rover that people don't see.
0: Yes, it's very similar to the iceberg because we are capable of seeing one ninth of the iceberg and everything under that is submerged under the water. And when people are normally just, you know, let's say a loser is making fun of a winner, a person who worked very hard to craft their future, they're like, man, look at this guy, all this money. Why isn't he giving back more? Which he may be giving back. He's just doing it in a very silent way. You see, You're why, just seeing... why
1: is this, uh, just to digress, why does he have to give back anything? Like he hasn't stolen it. It's, he's earned it. He doesn't have to give back anything. Like It's not giving back, it's charity. People act yes, like- Yes, charity. The term give back implies that you have taken something that you don't deserve. Or that it's an obligation to do something. Like you have to give back to us. Like I haven't taken anything from you, brother. I, this is what I've earned. It's mine. I don't have to give you anything. Like There is no bad karma associated with not being charitable.
0: That's true. I would say that it's not an obligation. However, one thing that I've noticed is that when people reach that upper echelon, their mindset shifts where they just naturally give back from their own goodwill. They don't need to be shamed into it. So I do agree with you where even hypothetically, let's say they don't, it's not an obligation for them, but normally like, you know, a guy like you, for example, what you do on autopilot is seen as giving back, where for you, a lot of the insights you post on life math money are probably just common sense to you, but other people are like, oh my goodness, life math money is such a giver because look at all this knowledge. So that's the, one of the good things of crafting yourself into a high value person where you just naturally give back without even noticing at times. But just to go back to that initial point where a lot of individuals, and this is why I don't check Facebook that much anymore, where there's a lot of jealous individuals on Facebook that are always complaining about people ahead of them. I'm like, dude, or dead you don't know what this person did in order to get to this level. Uh, It's like they automatically associate successful people as people that were given something. Privileged. Yeah, privileged. And that's a pretty uh, toxic word to use around a successful person because their fuel comes from their work ethic. Imagine if someone called you privileged, which I did see someone do that recently and you clapped back at them. Do you recall that? Yes.
1: I think, you know, the mindset people, are, some people have this mindset where they think that success is impossible and anyone who therefore has success has to cheat his way into success or be handed success, like inheriting money or, you know, all billionaires are thieves and things of that sort. They don't consider the possibility where the value, the reason why someone is successful is because they created that success themselves. If you take Bill Gates, for example, Bill Gates is the reason why we have computers everywhere. Steve Jobs is the reason why we have computers everywhere. These people deserve to be rich. They add so much value to everybody. And they didn't steal the value. They created it. And the reason, the fact that you're able to complain about it with your computer is because of them <laughs> so people have this bad mindset where they think that genuine success where you actually added value and created real things does not exist and all success has to be from this scummy cheating zero something and that's partially reason why these people are unsuccessful but It is how it is. You know, most people will not make it. Many people have this bad mindset. They can't be fixed. You should not waste your time with them. Most of the time, 99.99% of the time, the correct answer is smiling and agreeing with them and walking away. So you can not waste more of your time with them.
0: Yeah, I mean, debating with someone with completely different core beliefs always ends as a waste of time because you guys are arguing from two completely different paradigms. Would you say entitlement is mainly born from jealousy, lack of knowledge, or both?
1: Define entitlement.
0: Entitlement is when, let's say, someone sees harsh, and let's say, at this point, you're a billionaire, and someone's like, man, I deserve some of that money. Why isn't he giving me some of that money? Or why am I not actively seeing him give hand money to someone else? Where... They're kind of framing it as your success immediately means that you have to directly impact their life in some way. That's how I just give a very rough example of entitlement that connects with this example. Would you say it's born from just jealousy, envy, or just because this person doesn't know any better?
1: I think it would have two factors. One of them would definitely be jealousy, the other would be this fake belief that they could have done it as well. So they deserve some of the results. Like I could have done it too if I had really tried. So you should give me some of the results. Like You, you don't own all of your success.
0: Coulda, shoulda, woulda. Uh, did you ever have uh, certain people within your circle, even though I know that you do associate with growth-minded individuals, but people from your past, maybe even family members that started to resent you in any way? due to you growing in life?
1: It happens to all of us. <laughs> and I've had plenty of people like this, yes. Really? Yes.
0: And how did you deal with that? Did you love them from a distance? I, I just, did you cut it off?
1: I just cut them off. This, you can't Which? love someone who wants bad things to happen to you. Like, you, how much? How can you love somebody who wants you to fail? You can't. You can just walk away.
0: That's a interesting side to you, Harsh, because a lot of times when people hear about Harsh and Life Math Money, they don't understand a lot of the setbacks that you personally deal with on your day-to-day life as well. So knowing that even Harsh Strongman is capable of betrayal is a unique insight in itself.
1: But what do you mean by capable of betrayal? I haven't betrayed anybody.
0: No, no, no. Not you betraying someone. Like they betrayed you?
1: Oh, yes. Everybody has to deal with that. Like if you are going to be successful, the moment you become successful, you will find that most of your old friends are no longer your friends. Because people have this tendency of thinking that they are better than you, or even if they don't think that they're better than you, they have a rough estimate of how much better you are than them. And nobody, I think most people do not like it when you improve so much that. They feel inadequate or they just see that you went from zero to 100 while they were still at zero. And that creates a lot of envy and negative feelings towards you. It's just human nature.
0: Correct. There was this phrase that I coined a while back. I don't know if this is an actual phrase, but I called it dual jealousy, where not everyone is susceptible to it. But let's say someone is extremely jealous of another individual. A lot of the times, the person that they're jealous of in some way is jealous of them. And like I said, this isn't something that happens all the time. But one of my first encounters with this was when I was an undergrad. And just to kind of go back from the example from before, I was doing the whole external vice president thing for my fraternity, which allowed me to know a lot of people. And that was a good thing on my end. But in my engineering curriculum, there was that one semester where I was truly struggling. And I had a friend of mine named Tom, who was this borderline genius. Like he would study just for like a little bit, get straight A's, uh, quizzes, tests, amazing. And I'm not gonna lie, man. Younger me was like, man, look at this guy, always uh, doing so great with such minimal effort. I wish I could be like that. So one day, me and him were studying, and you know, as we're talking, and this is in a late night scenario in the library. And quick little insight, folks. Anytime you're having a late night conversation with someone, a rapport can be built at a much rapid rate. We're speaking, and I believe it's either him or me. That's yeah, so interesting,
1: that... by the way. I never thought of it that way. Like you're, when you're speaking late night, you build more rapid. And I've noticed this this, this to be true. It's, it's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, it's a, unique, uh, it's a unique insight because a lot of individuals let their guards down quicker in those moments so either it was myself or Tom who makes each other aware of being jealous or Tom's like man I'm jealous of you knowing so many people because I haven't left my dorm at all for a college party I've been here for over months and months and I still don't know many people outside of the engineering curriculum that's why I have so much time to study and pass these exams and I'm like dude I'm over here jealous of you because you keep passing this exam. (laughs) It was such a, a funny moment because I'm over here making this little assumption that he doesn't study at all. I'm creating this little narrative in my mind while he actually does study and he had no clue that I was jealous of him regarding his gift. So this whole jealousy game has you spinning in circles and not the good kind of circles either where you're coming away with more knowledge It's just not worth it. And more often than not, the person you're jealous of, you probably don't know their entire story. So that's what I I noticed. It's called dual jealousy.
1: It's pretty interesting. When I was maybe 10 or 12 or 13 years old, very young, my father gave me a book. And that book was called You Can Win by Shiv Khera. And I wasn't really into reading at that age. So I read the first few chapters or something. And I remember one, there's only one takeaway that, from that book I still remember. And the takeaway, I don't remember the story of how the takeaway came, but the moral was something like, the grass is greener on the other side. The other side has had the same thought and they would love to exchange. Hmm. So in your case, like, you think the grass is greener on his side, this guy's smart, he's passing all these exams, this. You, the guy thinks that the grass is greener on your side. If you have all these friends that you can hang out with, your life is actually interesting. And both of you would love to exchange.
0: True. and That's exactly what happened.
1: And it's just that we tend to focus on the things we don't have in other people. So if you take Elon Musk, okay? Elon Musk is this genius guy who is inventing rockets and things of that sort. But he's also a guy who has been divorced three times and he was heavily bullied as a kid. And when you look at the complete picture, maybe you would not want to switch places with him. But if you don't look at the complete picture, if you only look at the rockets and the cars, then you'd be like, yeah, okay, this guy's life is awesome. I want to switch places right away. But the complete picture will be like three divorces. So essentially not a good person life. I presume, I do not know Elon Musk, but just from this, I presume it's not a fun life. Probably a lot of stress from work and the whole getting beat up as a kid across his cooling thing. So given complete picture, I think many people who would instantly switch with him would decline. The grass is greener on the places You only notice the places where the grass is greener on their side and not green on your side. You don't notice the parts where the grass on your side is also green.
0: That's correct. And I have two laws as to why this is. The first one is what I call the science of jealousy. And this is whenever we're jealous, we amplify someone else's win and we undermine our win. So subconsciously, this may not even have happened on a conscious process we start to treat this person as some sort of superhero, as some sort of mythical deity. So that's number one. And the second one I have, and these are personal laws that I I create myself, just to help me create some mental maps of the world, is what I call the confidence irony. And this is basically where we act as though someone is more confident than they really are, and we undermine our own confidence. I came to find out that if you do the opposite, you'll actually have a much more attractive personality where if you can assume that someone is not as confident as they're seeming to the eye, then it actually makes you more empathetic towards them. And if you can keep on reinforcing that you are more confident than you are, it helps you automatically start unlocking the gratitude mindset. And this brings me to the third point where in terms of gratitude, that's the main antidote to stop getting jealous so quick you'll find that most people that get rapidly jealous of others lack a standard gratitude practice. I don't know about you, but I treat gratitude like an athlete. That's how I train for it. Because within the field of communication skills, writing, speaking, all you're doing is the T-O-L-D model, which is thinking out loud. You're thinking. Me and you right now, we're just thinking out loud. So one of the... Be fun. What was that? Uh,
1: The T O L D. The D is for
0: thinking out loud. Basically, the L O U D. It just combined into one. Correct. Yes. So, one of the greatest practices in order to think correctly is to have a standard gratitude practice. Now, here's a red flag. A lot of individuals are practicing gratitude incorrectly, and they're conditioning more anxiety within them. And here's the red flag that anyone who's listening to this should look out for. You do not just count your big wins. Because when you just count your big wins, now you're conditioning your mind to only be grateful for something big. Ah, I just got my new car. I just graduated from college. I just got my first profitable month. All big things. Instead, to practice gratitude like an athlete, what you should do is go micro- force yourself to speak about things that, for the most part, you wouldn't even notice. Because what this does is that it prevents you from just parroting away the same thing every single morning, the same five to seven things that you're grateful for, the big things. And it forces you to be bought back in the present moment, engage creativity, engage nonlinear thinking. And this process allows you to become your own hype man. A person who is their own hype man in private is not over here spending that much mental bandwidth getting jealous of everyone around them. Instead, they start priming their mind to acknowledge the small wins, which allows the big wins to be a byproduct, and that allows them to be more confident as a whole. So that's just my thoughts. A quick little summary of what I said is that you get jealous by treating someone else like a superhero and making yourself like some sort of fanboy, you stop doing that by understanding that people have their own personal problems. Don't assume someone is more confident than they are. Try to make yourself more confident in the interaction. And you do that through a standard gratitude practice by going micro rather than macro. Because when you go micro, macro is a byproduct. With that being said, uh, do you do anything gratitude related or do you just find that to be a waste of time?
1: It's more passive than more of an active practice. And I'll I'll tell you how I got into this passive thing in the first place. So when I was a kid, I was being very bratty once. In the sense that I was, I didn't want to eat the food mom made. And, you know, I was just being a bratty kid. And my dad asked me that. He pointed out to a watchman, and first of all, to promise this, India is a very poor country in many ways. There are, the poor people here or have almost nothing. They will live in slums, and they, don't, they won't even have good food to eat, clothes to wear. So he pointed out to a watchman, and he said that, "Why are you better than him? Like, why do you think you deserve more than him?" And I told him that I'm 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 more educated. Like, you know, I'm going to a proper school and everything, and he did not. And my father is like, yeah, but that's because I'm sending you to a better school because I can. And his father could not. You haven't done anything for it. So why are you better than him? And Hmm. I just did not have an answer. And I just became aware to the fact that I have it pretty good. And there are people out there who have it much worse than me. Through no fault of their own, in many cases, like this watchman, he was just born. So I did not, I I was not born in a rich family. My father used to be a farmer, but I still had enough money to go to school. But there are people out there who live in slums. They don't have clean food. Their parents don't send them to school. And life just sucks for them. And it's not their fault. They were just born in the wrong place. And when I think of that, I still think of that occasionally. I I look at a poor person and I could have been that person if I had been born there. And it is something that reminds you of the fact that whatever you're lacking is just trivial compared to some guy who lives in a slum. And this slum guy would be more than happy to exchange places with you. I remember I was out on a small vacation once and I was chatting with the driver we had hired and the driver told me that he wished that he had a family like mine and I was like, okay, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. So, you know, when you, you never think of all these people who are very poor or serving you as humans in the sense that you don't really process that they have emotions and they're actually thinking and understanding things. You just, we normally just think, okay, this guy drives the car, this guy cooks the food and goes home. This guy cleans your house, and this woman will do X job for you. You don't, you don't think of them as complete humans with thought and emotions. And to, for the Western people, I'll give you an analogy. When you think of a king who existed a thousand years ago. You tend to think of them as a primitive person who basically did things out of instinct like an animal and did not have actual thoughts and feelings when someone who existed uh, 1,000 years ago was a perfectly modern human who had the same complexity of emotions and understandings that you do. But we tend to not think of it that way. So I was doing the same thing and at that point I realized that these people are exactly as human as me. They are exactly as human as I am, they have the same feelings, the same thoughts. One time I heard this cleaning lady talk about her friends. And that's when I realized, okay, I was very young back then. I think 14, 15 years old that, okay, these people also have friends. Like, okay. Like that that's interesting. I, I didn't know that before. Like, I mm-hmm. mean, of course they do have friends, but like, I did not realize that they think in the same human way that I do. And I just more, I just became more aware of the humanity of the people who are not as fortunate as I am. And I did not come from a rich family. Like I said, like I was, my father was a farmer. We grew up in a city, but my family is originally a farming family from a very rural part in the country of India. So even in that situation, I was completely unaware of all the blessings i did have and now in my life i just realized that every time like i'm jealous of somebody or like if i don't have something like i do have a lot of other things that people will be willing to give away their arms for like there, there are people out there who would be happy to have both their hands cut off to have the resources that i have and that just automatic gratitude man like, it's very hard to be bratty when you realize that you are very
0: lucky. And that's all about perspective because in a first world country, a lot of the stuff that we have that we consider normal is a luxury in a third world country. And one of the examples are streetlights. Basically with streetlights, yes, it exists in third world countries, but in plenty of areas, actually stopping at a stop sign, uh, being on your lane, is considered ridiculous in some of the places in the third world where, let's say in the U.S. What's this stop sign? <laughs> <you, laughs> what? What is this? What is this red thing? Basically, in the U.S., when people see a red light, you could be a very primitive individual, but most likely you're going to stop. So the fact that this is something that's so normal right now, a person who has never left the U.S. or a first world country... May think that it's normal all the time, but it's all about perspective. That's why learning to travel and every now and then traveling to a place that isn't that well off is smart because now you start to enhance your maturity and you start to connect dots that you weren't aware of before. I agree with you, your part regarding humanizing a lot of individuals that you probably didn't think about before. Because younger me, and I'm gonna keep it 110%, younger me used to think that I would say around 11th grade when I was taking history class, I was thinking, why the hell am I learning about these people? These people didn't have the internet that I do, these people didn't have the cars, these people didn't have electricity. What can I possibly learn from these people? This was my 11th grade self. Older me nowadays willingly studies history. And I'm thinking, wow, so many of the same issues that I face nowadays, society faces nowadays, were the same issues that people in history were facing as well. So it's a whole different perspective shift. I believe that the quote goes like, if you have no perspective of history, you're like the leaf in the tree that doesn't know that it's a leaf. Mm. Do, do you enjoy history? Do you study it? I do.
1: And I have had the same experience. So I think the reason I I when I was in school I hated history. I hated it so much. I found it very boring. And the reason I think I hated history was because at least in our exams here, uh, the courses I did, there was a myopic focus on remembering names and dates. When in reality these these are the least important parts of history. The names and dates are not the least relevant parts of what you are trying to learn you're trying to learn the patterns what problems people went through why they went through it how they reacted and things of that sort and not the name of a ruler what year he started a war at and things of things like that that is useless information i don't care about that information i want to know why rome fell i want to know why rome succeeded for so long I want to know which king, what policies he had and what effect did it have on the population and how did the population move with these thoughts down the line, how things evolved. I want to see the concepts, the themes of history. I don't care about the name of the guy, what date he was born at, what was his mother's name. (laughs) So I think that the reason everybody, at least I hated history, was... It was just, okay, Mahatma Gandhi, fine. Why do I need to know that his mother's name is Patlibai? Like, I don't care at all. Like, This is not useful information to me. Why do I need to know that Mahatma Gandhi's full name is Mohan Karamchand Gandhi or something like that? <laughs> it's,
0: yeah, I mean, it's just what not, practical value?
1: What practical value does this have to me? I would like to know maybe why were people attracted to his ideas of nonviolence? How did he get people to follow him? and what effects it had down the line on the country. I don't care about his name or his mother's name or his father's name or his date of birth, et cetera.
0: And it's one thing to learn those sort of extra information as a byproduct of you pursuing why people resonated with these ideas. But just learning the names, the dates, just for the sake of learning it and dating it, is sort of like in communication, someone just listening to the words and ignoring the message. I'm sure you have to deal with this because you have a lot of followers on Twitter, but do you ever have that moment where someone completely ignores your message just to fix your grammar?
1: Yeah, that happens quite a few times. And more people that, are... it happens, for example, someone completely ignores what you're saying just because you said something they don't agree with.
0: Nowadays, Harsh, as your account has been growing, do you notice yourself attracting a lot more people that you don't like and you have to consistently thin the herd with honest opinions? Or are you nowadays zoning in on people who already know what the Life Math Money, Life Math Money brand is about?
1: Well, both, in the sense that I do attract more people who are into self improvement, and people in self improvement tend to be more realistic. But every once in a while, I do find myself you know losing followers because i said something and that's just completely fine by me i think that's a good thing because it improves the quality of the content it improves the people reading it it culls the herd so to speak i think that if as a creator you curate your content to suit your audience at that point you just become a slave like you can't say what you want to say you have to think twice. You have to be politically correct just because you've now built this audience of people who don't really care about your real opinions. They just want to hear what they want to hear. It's, it's a bad long-term strategy. But if you're always honest and you just say what you want, then you will build a following of people who know that and who either agree with you or are open-minded enough to consider what you have to say. So that gives you true freedom to say what you want. How many other accounts on Twitter are there who Can say, marry only virgins and not lose half their following. Only me.
0: Would you say that was your most controversial tweet? I, don't I even remember know that one going viral. That
1: tweet is controversial. It's not controversial at all. It's common sense. Everybody knows it. Everybody wants to do it. Why would anybody not want to marry a virgin? It makes zero sense to me that it's controversial. It's not controversial. The only reason why some people, and I will say some people get mad about it is because they're so low value that they can't get a virgin. like they, they can't get a high value woman. So they have to basically convince themselves that wanting it is wrong. So they have to start thinking that, okay, I can't get a virgin to like me because I'm such a low value person. I'm a soil boy. I have like two chins and I've never seen the inside of a gym. <laughs> so I have to, to feel happy or, you know, to at least feel like I'm valuable, I would have to, in such a situation, convince myself that wanting a virgin is a bad thing. Like, it's okay, it's the same thing if she's not a virgin, etc. And when I say marrying a virgin is good, then just to maintain their identity, like what they have, what beliefs they have held to protect their ego, they have to fight me. And because they're logically wrong, they, ro- they lose. But... Which is why they, all of their arguments are you're a misogynist or some other ad hominem remark. Like Basically, their argument to marrying only virgins is you're evil. Like that's not an argument, bro. Like, okay, fine, maybe I am the worst person in the world, but you have not proven me wrong. You have only said that I'm wrong. It just doesn't... It goes to show that how little logic you have And only goes to show that you would rather shame me into agreeing with you rather than actually providing any evidence. So I don't think saying marrying only virgins is controversial at all. I don't think it's even barely controversial. I think maybe in the West, women have become very loose. So barely any women are virgins now there. But if you go to the Middle East or India or China or most places around the world, this is like a normal thing, like, People would be like, yeah, okay, but you don't have to tell me that. Like, I know that already. Like, why would I not marry a virgin?
0: And the people that are normally uh, coming at you for this tweet, are most of them men or women?
1: There are certain women out there, but see, a woman that gets mad on this tweet is because she's not a virgin and she's just afraid that if this ideology becomes more prevalent, she will have fewer suitors, which is something I would understand. i like, okay, like she has a personal interest in this and being mad about it. Men who get mad about it is the reason I just told you. It's just that they are so low value that they have convinced themselves that even wanting a virgin is wrong because they can't get it. So they have to fight me just to hold their identity together. It's I've seen the display pictures of some of these people when they have it. And it's it's usually what you expect. Like a guy has like a huge chin hanging down and he has a stomach, and it's Extremely, this guy has never been in the gym. It just this guy could never get a high value woman because he's never put any work on himself, and that's why he is that's why he feels that I am being evil, I'm just attacked. He feels that his identity is being attacked. See, when someone says something, you have two ways to deal with it, okay? One way is that you can provide them with logical, logical refutations of it, like okay, why are you wrong? I'll tell you why it's wrong. The second way you can deal with it is that you can completely ignore it. Okay, you have your opinions, I have mine. But when you attack when someone's identity is attacked in the sense that they feel that you have said something and it personally impacts their ego beliefs, that's when they start insulting you. Like then they will not correct you or ignore you then they'll start calling you evil they'll start calling you sexist misogynist whatever and that's when you know that you they have no logical things to say all they have to say is you're evil because you hurt my feelings you, there is no arguing with them you can only block them
0: has anyone tried to come at you in a logical manner or did most people just straight up attack you
1: almost all of them just shit attack and try to ad hominem me but The only logical remark that I heard about the whole not marrying a virgin thing is that a woman who has been with somebody before might appreciate you more because her previous relationship might have not ended well. And if yours is going well, she might have more appreciation towards you, which maybe is true in some cases. But if you look at statistics, if you actually see marriage statistics and you see the, having even one partner increases the risk of divorce significantly so let me pull up the statistic and it's like if if you have zero if the girl has zero partners then the risk of divorce is like 5% but one partner would make it 20% so you've quadrupled the risk so statistics show that it's unwise and it, it is unwise everybody knows this thing. At some level, all men understand this. I think men who don't understand this understood it understood it at some point, but they brainwashed themselves or deluded themselves into not believing it for whatever reason. But if you take mm-hmm. if you take a teenager, okay, you take a thirteen-year-old and you give him two options: like you can either marry a virgin or you can marry a girl who's not a virgin. All of them will pick the virgin, and it is just. How things are in the world, like why would you not want one?
0: Gotcha. And where you're from, Harsh, you don't have to go too specific. Would you say that nowadays promiscuity promiscuity is an issue over there, or it is increasing
1: in the cities, but not quite right now. But I think over time it's going to get worse. Upper middle class society has the problem. Rich people have the problem, but we don't have as many rich people here, so. It's relatively curbed towards the whole liberal circle. But otherwise, no, we don't have as much of this issue. I think that we are still heading in the same direction the West is heading in as we become more prosperous and as we import more Western culture through movies, TV, music. And we will see the same problems pop up here
0: too. So it was very interesting where around that time when you had that tweet up, there was another uh, post that was going super viral on my Facebook feed and it was a woman's uh, post that was going viral. Have you ever heard of the phrase called pick me? Sorry, what? Uh, It's a phrase called pick me. You know how guys call other guys simps? Women, uh, a derogatory term technically is called pick me. Have you ever heard of that?
1: No, I have not.
0: So it's basically in the woman's world, this means a, a woman that Just head nods to men, just agrees with men nonstop. And basically, uh, there was this one post that was being shared on my Facebook, which was uh, saying that, you know, when, uh, you know, it's always been my dream as a girl to, you know, be a housewife, for me to, you know, take care of my husband, take care of my children, uh, cook, clean, that sort of stuff. And dude, her post was going viral. And it was around the same time your post was going viral and a bunch of people were attacking her calling her a pick me how could you they've brainwashed you how could you possibly believe that and the level of vitriol that your tweet was getting because it was polarizing where anytime a large group agrees a large group is going to disagree it was the same thing happening with this woman a
1: large group disagrees i think there's a small vocal minority who just disagrees and they They just act, pretend to be a large group. So I I would say that maybe 2% of people disagree. But all of these 2% of people are so vocal that it seems like there's a large number of people.
0: Oh, so you're saying the small minority is pretty much the loudest.
1: Yes. I think a lot of issues are like this. If you take transgenderism or homosexualism and things of that sort, who are the people who are actually advocating for it it's just one or two percent of people but they are so loud that you tend to think that this is the this is the mainstream opinion
0: That, that actually shifts my perception because for the woman whose post was going viral now i'm starting to evaluate that from a different lens maybe the people that were the loudest that were like this is bs blah 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 were in a similar situation as you but that is something that I noticed. Did you have any thoughts regarding that post?
1: I think that there are women out there who agree with men as a way to get attention. But I do think that there are many women who are who have been raised properly, or I would say properly, but that's my opinion, but who have been raised in a way to think that this is what they want to do. And that they generally want to do that. Like they generally want to be of mother they genuinely want to take care of their family and that's a good thing
0: yeah i don't see anything wrong with that where when i saw this post i thought uh, kudos uh, good stuff for you and when i saw some of the attacks that was my first time understanding what a pick me was so when you said you didn't know what it was uh, trust me i had no clue what it was either and then some people were like in the comments can someone please explain to me what a pick me is and there was this one guy that gave a detailed description. And I thought, oh, whoa, in the guy's world, that's a simp. Uh, and it's unique to see how words, language evolves but as time evolves. I would not say evolves. a simp
1: because a woman who wants to be a housewife, she wants to take care of her family, she wants to cook food.
0: No, no, I'm not saying that that part's a simp. I'm saying calling her the label of "no Pick I, Me. But the thing oh, is,
1: it's a, it's a little different in the sense that a man would want that a woman would never want a simp like even though women say that they want a guy who ha- essentially has simp like characteristics women don't actually pick simps men will actually oh, no, pick 100%. that pick me girl like whatever oh, no, I... men will pick that the men will actually prefer that but women don't prefer simps simps just aren't valuable to anybody
0: oh yeah let me let me just be clear real quick uh I definitely do agree with that. I think we're getting a little misunderstanding where I do not think by any means women prefer a simp. I think they will grow resentful of the simp over time because this simp is giving power to a person who really does not want that level of power. What I'm basically saying with the pick Me is where it's seen as a derogatory phrase, but for... Large portion of guys, if you were to ask them what they truly want, they're going to say that. They're going to say that they would like what this woman was offering and bringing to the table. So, 100%, I agree with you on that regards. I do not um, uh, find any issue with that. Now, let me ask you when you are evaluating a woman, what is Harsh Strongman looking for? What are a few characteristics?
1: you want someone like, uh, as I mentioned earlier, like you would want a virgin for sure, but you would want someone who is kind, intelligent because intelligence is, if a woman is dumb, she will make dumb children. You don't want dumb children. You want smart children. So it's important that the girl has to be intelligent. She has to be compassionate, feminine. She should not be a feminist in a sense that she should not view men as bad. If she thinks men are, these evil pigs who have oppressed her you cannot have a good relationship with someone like that it's just not possible because she she does not believe in your she does not believe that you are there for her she believes that you're against her and that you are someone she has to protect herself from so that is not a good framework for her so you would want a woman who is not a feminist Things like cooking and those skills can be learned. I don't think they're super important. She can always pick them up later, but the baseline things have to be there. She has to have a good relationship with her father because if she has a bad relationship with her father, it'll transfer to you. She will not trust you. Women's main exposure to masculinity is through their father. And a woman who has a bad relationship with her father will often think that, men are bad or they, they don't understand that masculine energy is about protecting and growing things. They, if, the, if she thinks her father was basically oppressing her, she will think the same thing about you. So you don't want a woman who has a bad relationship with a father. You don't want a woman who's dumb because dumb women produce dumb kids. Everything else can be fixed. If she has the right mindset towards you and she's intelligent, The other things are just perks. Like if you take beauty, beauty is a perk. Beauty, even if a girl is not beautiful, that would still be fine if she has these other two traits. Your relationship would be well. These two things, I think, are non-negotiable. And of course, the virginity thing that I told you, because that's super important from a statistical point of view. Uh, Although I do think that there are situations where, at least in the West, you would want, you just don't have an option if you live in the West, there's just not enough of them around. But just, just make sure that you have these two things right, okay? She has to have a good relationship with her father because that's the same mindset she will put you in. And she has to be intelligent because the world is moving at a place where being dumb is a huge liability. You want your children to be successful in life, don't you? So for that, the girl has to give your children good genes. Everything else, like beauty, can be fixed. Of course, to, if possible, you would like to marry a taller woman just so your son does not have short height.
0: Oh, you like tall women?
1: No, what I'm saying is that you, if your children are short, if a woman is short, that's still okay. But if a guy is short, well, they don't have good life experiences. Like, they tend to get snubbed on by everybody, including other men and women, so. Just to give your kids a better shot at life, it might be of value to marry a woman who is taller.
0: Gotcha. It's always funny because whenever I talk with my friends, we're always like, "What is the weirdest thing that you like about the opposite gender?" And for me, it's always been short women. So I'm six foot, and most of my relationships have been with people in the and I'm I'm pretty weird in this way, where it's around five two to the five four range. Too short, my (laughs) friend. So let's flip it real quick. Harsh, what would you say a guy should bring to the table before considering a relationship to find a quality woman? Firstly, the guy should be making enough money to support himself
1: and someone else. He should be intelligent, of course, like I said. If If he wants a smart girl, he would have to be intelligent. He also has to have the best interests of the girl in mind in the sense that you know sometimes people think that you you got to be completely selfish and this girl, woman has to sacrifice everything all of her dreams for you and that is not how it should be like right? that's not right she also has her own dreams thoughts ideas and you have to be willing to support her through them maybe she wants to paint and learn things and things of that sort you should want to have children, of course. Oh, by the way, the woman should want to have kids. If a woman says she does not want to have kids, just walk away. So this guy should also want to have children, and everything else is pretty standard. Like he has to be cooperative like, in the sense that he, he can't be an asshole or abusive. Like he has to be more humane, and everything else is a fringe benefit. He has to be strong, sure, but even weak people do have okay relationships so everything else can be negotiate, negotiated to some or the other extent
0: but these things can't be negotiated and life math money overall the account definitely deals with targeting men where some people that are new to your account they may not notice let's say your detractors that you're very Hard on men as well, where you're expecting the best out of them. So with life, math, money, it's a, it's where you're focusing on the bigger picture rather than just pointing out flaws in one gender. So I did just want others to know that. Do you ever feel as though that you know sometimes you get called certain labels that you laugh it off or you think that these people just don't know about you?
1: I think that the society we live in currently has this idiom where men are supposed to have all the responsibility but asking a woman to do anything is misogyny so women will often tell you that men have to be xyz they have to do xyz things etc but the moment you say something like women should know how to cook suddenly you're a misogynist so the reason why you get all these labels is that people have this weird primer in their head that Men have to do everything, like they have to have XYZ, they have to fulfill all the women's demands and to ask anything of women, to have any standards from a woman is some sort of crime now. So I think these people are just complete idiots. Like they have they have basically no idea what they're talking about and which is why they tend to resort to these labels and it's just a feature of being big on the internet that you are going to reach some of these people and you can just block them. And that's how it is. I don't think that they are rational in any way.
0: Some of the things harsh are just life skills. Around 2019, I wrote this tweet that wrote, cooking should not be optional. It should be mandatory. And I believe any human, for that matter, should know basic dishes to cook. Without the help of a recipe book, you should be able to cook at least five dishes. Is that asking for too much? Do you know how to cook at least? I mean, probably at this stage you may have a chef. I don't know. You're a big baller like that, but do you? It's not no basic big of cooking. A
1: deal to have a chef in the place I live at, it's it's kind of the norm. But yeah, I know uh-huh. how to cook some basic stuff like rice and things of that sort, sandwiches. But I can't cook that well. I never had the time to learn how to cook properly. I've always, so I run two businesses and I also study computer science on the side. I have to go to the gym, etc. So I never had enough bandwidth to learn how to cook. And learning cooking takes a long time. And cooking itself takes a lot of time of the day. People tend to underestimate that. To make dinner, it does not take two minutes. It takes like an hour or two hours. And it's a lot of overhead. I just outsource it.
0: Yeah, so when I was in Bangladesh, we used to have maids, servants, which is completely the norm there. And here, U.S., if you have a maid or servant, uh, you definitely a big baller. Uh, I did want to break down something that you brought up last time, and you just sort of bought it up right now. Uh, you've ran two businesses uh, for some time. One thing that you're different in is that you haven't really ever had to be in a formal office setting, right? You never know, had a 40 hour week job?
1: Not true. Actually, I have. I, I am a chartered accountant. And chartered oh, accountancy really? involves three years of mandatory internship. So I've been with bigger companies, like one of the world's biggest companies. And I've also been in smaller companies. So I have experience with working regular jobs as other
0: people. Got it. And throughout your career, did you ever have to play office politics where? You're trying to negotiate a higher salary. Someone's talking about you, bosses, that kind of stuff.
1: Well, not exactly higher salary, but yeah, I did have to do a bit of office politics. I was generally not very good at it. So when I worked for other people, I was very young back then. I was 18 to 21. So I was way too young to be good at office politics. I was always horrible at it. And I just didn't care enough. And even today, I don't really care much about this whole office politics things. I'm my own boss and it doesn't really matter at all to me. But yeah, when I was working for other people, I was 18 years old, 19 years old, 17 years old, 21, 20, 20 years. I think 20, yeah, 20 was the last time. So at that point, I was just, it wasn't about having a higher salary and things of that sort.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So since starting the Armani Talks company, I've worked with a few clients in the back end. And, you know, you could see from your analytics who's predominantly following your content. But based off of working with my clients, I came to notice general patterns. Most of the time, they fall into three different categories. They're either foreign, where they're just moving to the US for the first time. They're either introverted entrepreneurs, or they're awkward engineers. and Just to clarify,
1: what is the service you provide exactly?
0: So I provide a different variety of communication skills where there's three that I predominantly focus on. Uh, Public speaking, uh, creative writing in order to grow a brand on the internet, and speaking in front of the camera or starting a podcast. These are just three of the variety. And then sometimes there's personalized services as well, where... For the awkward engineers, which is a phrasing which I used to resent when I was younger, but this basically means that uh, engineer who speaks in very technical jargon. And one of the new services that I've been providing to two new uh, of my clients is how to have a more approachable personality in the office setting, and learning how to navigate around office politics, because even if you don't want to play office politics sometimes it will still find you regardless. It will always
1: find you. That's one of the things about working with other people is that even though you don't care about power, you are still a part of the game. And just because you don't like the game and you're not playing the game does not mean that you're not in the game and does not mean that other people will use you as a pawn, will not use you as a pawn.
0: Right. And basically... With working with some of the clients, I came to notice that it started off as a public speaking session where they wanted to build more comfort, sharing their ideas and group meetings, learning the art of thinking on their feet. But the more that we progressed, the more that it became about networking, about understanding how to conduct business meetings after the initial meeting is done. I call that the meeting after the meeting, learning how to introduce yourself so You can engage at quicker rates and solve problems quicker because a lot of engineers and operations go head to head. They speak completely different languages. So you being an engineer who knows how to communicate in a very warm, simple way is a huge leverage in the office politics world. So that's one of the reasons I brought up the whole background of you, Harsh, because I'm pretty sure you mentioned it before that you were an accountant in one of our first interactions, but I guess that must have left my mind. What are some of the things that you learned, even though you were pretty young at the time, from being in a formal job setting versus being out there on your own?
1: The most important thing that I learned in a formal job setting is how much I hate being in a formal job setting and how much I dislike having other people tell me what to do. To be fairly honest, I did not pick up on a lot of skills when it comes to people skills at my workplace because I was very brazen back then and I just did not care enough about these skills. I just thought they were a waste of time and technical skills are the only things that matter. So at that point, I did not care enough and I didn't didn't take it seriously. I would have people tell me that I would be much better off if I try to improve my social skills and be more compassionate. But I just always thought of it as a irrelevant thing and that's something that other people do for basically wasting their time. But I, I did not value it ever. So at that time, I did not pick up any of these skills. I, I learned them in business. When you have to deal with customers and you have to deal with other business partners and you are actually invested in the success of the company and not just trying to collect a paycheck or things of that sort. So I did not learn much of social skills at the formal workplace. The only, the most important thing I learned at the workplace was that I had to do something so that I don't end up here for the rest of my life
0: so it served as a springboard for your entrepreneurship career
1: well yes and no no because i i always knew i would be an entrepreneur like it was there was never a doubt in my mind ever since i was a kid i wanted to be in business so it was just a matter of time this thing is what it did for me is that it just made me realize that a position where someone else commands you to do something is a position that just does not work well with me. Like There are people it really works well with, but with me, I just don't have the temperament or the personality to do it. I, I can do it when I respect somebody a lot, but I can't do it just because someone is a boss. For example, if I respect you a lot, I do respect Raman. And if I was working with you and you're, you're giving me advice on how I can be a better communicator, I would take it in a heartbeat because I respect you. But if I just joined a workplace and I'm assigned a boss and I don't respect him, I just, I think he's an idiot and having to work under someone I do not respect would be, but essentially it'd be very suffocating for me. So that's one of the main things I learned, but I don't think it was a springboard for entrepreneurship because I was always entrepreneurial. I was just doing a course in accounting at that point, which mandates a three year work experience thing. So I was just collecting that work experience.
0: And you said that mainly in your work life, you had the hard skills and the soft skills were something that you developed in your business journey. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. And at least you're capable of developing both. One thing that I try to say is that hard skills without soft skills is a great product with shit marketing and soft skills without hard skills is great marketing with an awful product the goal is to have both and understand that both serve practical purposes. The only problem with soft skills is that it's something that's very ambiguous. It's very hard to get a grasp on. Uh, This fellow right here is creative. A couple of years ago, Harsh, IBM interviewed 50 of the top CEOs from the planet. And they asked the CEOs, what do you think is the number one trait in people that you would want to hire for your company. Do you know what they said? No. Creativity, which is a soft skill, but it's extremely difficult to quantify. So if you're someone that's listening to this who is a very technical individual and you want a little bit of insights on how to basically make the intangible tangible, here's some recommendations. One recommendation is... You want to see if you can quantify it. Uh, Basically, I'll just give you a quick little example. There was a period a couple of years ago, Harsh, where I was working as a driver in Zingo. And this was basically Uber for drunk people. You basically just pick up uh, drunk drivers uh, who have their car in a certain location. You drive to them. You take their car back. And for Zingo, we had little scooters that we would drive back to the home base in. So... we were targeting an extremely affluent part of Tampa. It wasn't rocket science that we should have all been getting great tips. But I came to see that I was getting very little tips compared to my coworker, whose name was Terry. He was getting $50, $100 tips from these rich people. I was barely making five bucks. So eventually I had to ask him, what is it that you're doing that I'm not doing? And as he was going through his process, he said that he was routinely the first person asking the driver how their night went while me at the time I was waiting for them to speak to me. So when I was able to see that by simply starting the conversation, it could lead to potential tangible benefits. I opened my mind up to a whole new possibility and I started to apply Terry's advice into this setting. So as soon as I started to apply his advice, my $5 tips turned into 50 And now I was able to make the intangible of conversation skills tangible. And one more example was in the engineering career when I had to deal with operations team a lot. Engineers hated operations because they thought operations were lazy. Operations hated the engineers because they thought the engineers sounded like uh, walking, talking robots. But what started to happen, Harsh, was that I was able to develop one important connection in the operations team. And he was consistently giving me insider information and I was giving him insider information. And by insider, I just mean, we were talking about what's going on with operations and I was talking about what's going on with engineering. So rather than trying to resolve a problem by addressing a huge team, I could directly go to that one person. So once again, me having that connection was able to save me hours of times rather than hour trying to talk to a big group of people who's like, no, you got to talk to that person, got to talk to that person, I talk to that person. I was able to turn the hours into minutes by having that right connection. Once again, the right connection, a soft skill, was able to be made tangible. So if you're someone that's a technical kind of guy, that wants to develop your soft skills, start off speaking in the language that you're comfortable speaking in. Speak in numbers if you have to and work your way up to the words. Do you have any advice for someone who's extremely technical but wants to develop their soft skills?
1: Yes. And the main mindset shift that these people need to go through is that they need to realize that it is far more important and valuable to be a likable person than to be a technically skilled person in many settings, not in all settings, but in many places, your technical skills will not be of much use, but your ability to be well liked, your ability that people are able to connect with you is very important. In fact, in most, in most situations, it's far more important and your technical skills are only important in a narrow set of situations. That is your workplace. So people need to these people what I think a big factor is that they have this mindset where they just don't respect the social skills enough. They think it's bullshit or they think it's it's something that should not be valuable. Like there are many engineers who will wear essentially very shabby looking clothes that don't fit them because they think that people should not care about my appearance. That's fair, okay. People should not, but they do. (laughs) You you cannot (laughs) you cannot impose your shoulds and should nots on reality. Reality just is and your wishes are irrelevant or your wishes are essentially you projecting how you think reality should be on what it it really is. So you need to look at how reality is and reality in reality people care about how you look. People judge books by their cover. So you should have a good cover. So you need to first, the most important thing you need to do is to be open to learning and to be open to learning these soft skills. You have to first understand and you know accept that these things are relevant and important and not just nonsense.
0: One of the most important things, and for people that are like, oh, well, appearance doesn't matter at all. Imagine that you're watching a speaker who's about to speak in front of 200 people Just ask them
1: if appearance does not matter at all. Would you want to go out with an obese girl or not?
0: (laughs) A lot of truths will be shed. (laughs) Just imagine though, if this speaker comes center stage, is wearing a white shirt with a mustard stain on it. This guy could be giving the most brilliant speech out there, but humans are visual creatures. Their eyes are going to be primed towards that mustard stain on the white shirt. And sure, they're still going to be listening to the message as well, but the message is not going to be as impactful. One of the best ways to work on your speech anxiety is to just dress up, dress up like a winner, like you're the CEO of a planet. And if you start treating yourself like that, now a lot of the nerves, you'll see something magical happen. The audience members are extremely forgiving to someone that they think Took the time to prepare for the speech so let's say harsh Mm, you know someone that's interesting
1: you're right yeah
0: let's say harsh two people there's rohit and then there's rahul rohit comes center stage gives a really good speech but his he's wearing a smelly basketball shorts crusty white shirt and just doesn't look good while rahul He still gives an impactful message, but he combed his hair. He has a nice fragrance on, and he has the nice wardrobe on. Immediately, before even bringing up the audience, who do you think is physiologically going to feel better in this circumstance?
1: The second guy.
0: Yeah, and it shows firsthand that, yes, wardrobe does have an impact on your psychology. So don't undermine this because this is one of the easiest ways to become more likable even if you currently have social anxiety or speech anxiety.
1: Hmm. That that makes a lot of sense. I think that you know when you actually dress well, you, pre- you at least present that you're prepared, it tells people that you were sincere. That, okay, even though your speech sucked, you, were, you had sincerely tried to give your best to it, and maybe you failed, but people respect sincerity. Okay? It makes them feel important that you cared enough to practice, you cared enough to do all of these things. But when you say the guy in the basketball shorts, this guy was not sincere. So he, if he messes up, people will think that he does not care, and he intentionally wasted their time. He could have prepared, but he did not, and which is why he failed. So the people will have almost no empathy for this guy, but they will have a lot of empathy for the well-dressed guy who they felt had put in sincere effort. I think people would approach them from very different levels of empathy.
0: And so many people make these little mistakes just because they don't have the knowledge. There's a ton of people who open a speech with, Oh, I didn't prepare. So just bear with me. And this happens so many times with different people who have speech anxiety. And I just like hit my forehead because I'm like, dude, you do not say that because even if you're nervous, now you're making it seem like the audience is not important because you didn't prepare. Another one is, oh, I'm so sick. Once again, bear with me. The audience does not know, they don't need to know. As the public speaker, Be the conductor of energy and just for those 10 to 12 minutes, suck it up and act as though that you own the stage because you do. So a big part of communication skills, public speaking, social skills is a large part about perception. And that's why I believe one of the best teachers in regards to this are people who used to be awkward, who used to be shy, who used to be extremely poor with public speaking Because they're able to spot body language quirks at a more rapid rate versus someone who considers themselves a natural.
1: Hmm. That makes some sense. I, I partially agree with it. I think that anyone who had to learn social skills can make a good teacher versus someone who is natural at something cannot he does not himself know what he's doing because he's doing it naturally and because he does not he is himself unaware of how he's doing it he cannot teach you wisdom is someone who was bad at it and he had to consciously learn something he had to consciously learn how to do it right he actually knows what to do he has practiced it and therefore he can tell you So there is, of course, a lot of value in learning from someone who has had to put in work. So if you take, for example, someone, if you want say advice on losing weight, you cannot take advice from someone who has essentially been skinny all their life. They've just been skinny. They don't know what they've done. They have no information, even though they might be doing a lot of things right. They don't know what they're doing right. They've just been skinny throughout their life you would want advice from mm-hmm. someone who got fat and then lost the weight. So this person knows what changes you need to make.
0: Right. I, I mean, they could find these little micro targets that w- would not be thought of by someone who it always came unusual usual to. Uh, we spoke uh, briefly about this in the first podcast, Harsh, but did you ever have that stage where you were awkward yourself? I believe you spoke something about the lines of there was a period where you didn't want to engage with too much people because there were you were focusing on bigger things. Maybe I'm misconstruing that. Did you have a moment when you were awkward?
1: I was awkward, but in a different way. I was not awkward because I was shy. I was awkward because I was somewhat socially unhinged when I was younger, in the sense that I would say whatever came to my mind. If I thought you were doing something wrong, I would just say you're wrong. I would not give an explanation I would not I would not be polite about it if I thought that you were wasting your time I will say you're wasting your time I would not I would not I I would not say I think you're wasting your time I would just say you're wrong you're wasting your time and that is being awkward but it's not being shy I was not shy I was just very brazen if you get me I was I was very blunt and it took me some time to understand that people even if you're right, people are not able to digest bluntness. You need to put it up in a way that they can actually absorb it without them hating you.
0: Because many people factor in the tonality.
1: Everybody for... does it. Everybody facts factors in the tonality. Even the people who think they don't do it on some level. Mm-hmm. But I was when for... I was younger, I was just not wise enough to understand that. I thought being right is what mattered and all of these are like the engineer who dresses up in a weird way. I thought all of these should not matter,
0: but it does have changed. For me, uh, my problem used to be in my early age to my early teens, I was at, I was very shy for a long period of time and me being shy introduced me to different problems that I don't think a non-shy person even has a clue about. And just to give you an example, recently I wrote a tweet which ended up resonating with a lot of people where I said, When you spot a shy person, one thing that you shouldn't do is ask a question like, Why are you so quiet for? <laughs> it's the, and many people just do that because they think that's the right move. The better move, in my opinion, is to not even acknowledge they're shy and be completely normal with them. Because with this person, Now they disengage overthinking and they become an ally to you quicker. And when I wrote that, I got two DMs from different people who are like, you just opened up my worldview because whenever I see some shy person, I literally ask them, why are you so quiet? I have been that myself in the past, I will admit. Yeah, man. And someone who's not shy is not going to be able to spot a micro quirk like that because you're not going to get that on Google. It's because it's learned from real world experience. uh, And that's just something that I personally noticed. So yeah, I mean, I was shy for a long period of my life. And when someone asks, why are you so quiet? Now it's it's like, how do you respond back to that sort of thing? So a lot of social quirks that are made are not done with maliciousness. It's just done because people don't know any better.
1: Agreed, I think that is definitely a factor where people just lack experience and wisdom. Although I find it very interesting that you used to be shy. I have personally never been able to relate to the whole shyness thing. I was never shy. Even as a kid, like I was very brazen and I was I was essentially very out there. I was never shy and I just find it very difficult to relate when someone says they're shy. I just I just don't understand their problem as much as they do. I
0: think so. go ahead. So basically for me, it was a two-part factor. The first part factor was that, you know, I moved from Bangladesh to a, a new country and I used to get mocked for my accent a lot. I would say that was one variable. And the second one was that I had an older brother who would routinely speak up for me. So I think that incorporated the shy habit even a little bit more. And then as I started to, you know, really mature as a person, I started to understand, and people may not like this, shyness is a social weakness. It's holding you back. It does. And the minute that you can admit that to yourself firsthand is the minute that you're like, oh, whoa, I got to do something about it. Because for a lot of shy people, what they think is that the shyness is just going to randomly go away on its own. They don't understand that you're going to have to put in practical work in order to make it happen. And there's two paths that I have. One is the slow path. The second is the fast path. The slow path to overcoming shyness is just to speak up a little bit more in each interaction where you're taking it one interaction at a time. Eventually, you speak up more in a group setting. and Eventually, you start hosting event, something like that. That's the slow path. If you want to tackle the beast straight up and do the fast path, public speaking because with public speaking you immediately expose yourself to a brand new paradigm and if you can speak to 50 people with ease five people become light work so my path harsh was very unique because if i never had that chapter in my life when i was shy then i don't think i would have had that much conviction to start public speaking which eventually ended up killing two birds with one stone mm. it allowed me to communicate my message and It's made me better in social interactions as well. And I think that gives me more credibility to speak about this issue because when people are like, yo, I'm shy too, but people can't really tell. I'm like, and you know how you just said, oh, I'm really surprised that you were shy. Mm -hmm. Most people were surprised too. They're like, man, I could have never told. But there's a big difference between shy and quiet. Quiet people just don't have that much to say. Shy people want to say more, but they feel self-conscious. So personally, I'm grateful for that chapter in my life harsh mainly because it kind of set the springboard for Armani talks and it gives me more 4D insights rather than 2d insights.
1: It's interesting. I think what you say makes sense. I do think that you know shyness is basically irrational like people don't care about you enough for. People feel self-conscious, but they don't realize that no one else is thinking of them at all. Like no one cares. Like, you could do some of the most embarrassing things out there and people will forget in a day or two. People just don't care about you enough. Like, people, people are too busy with their own self. I think shyness at some level has this weird spotlight thing where they think that people are always looking at them, always watching them. And that is just not true. Like if you, if, a shy person or anybody, they get hit by a bus. Two days from now, the only people who will care are their family. One year from now, all of your friends would have forgotten you existed. No one would remember all of your anything about you, basically. You're not that important. So I think that the whole shyness thing is, is just this bad idea in the head that people care about this person's actions and they remember them. They don't.
0: And one of the best ways to put this into uh, an example is, you ever seen someone just trip and fall? Yes. Uh, did you end up thinking about them all day? No. Was it pretty embarrassing for them when they tripped and fell? Somewhat. Exactly. So that's a quick little nutshell of a lot of the uh, things regarding shyness, where they're thinking that, oh, no, I, I just slipped and fell. Uh, a harsh. I must be thinking about me all day, just like I am. I'm like, (laughs) Exactly. uh, See, can you think of,
1: when was the last time you remember a friend of yours being very embarrassed about something? It's actually very difficult to pinpoint.
0: Very difficult. And the human mind is not conditioned to think about other humans unless they're infatuated with them or if this other human directly harmed them in some way. So if I am spending the rest of the podcast just attacking your character, then you may be thinking about me for a little bit, and then you may go back to your day-to-day activities. But if in the situation of me tripping and falling, I'm not directly harming someone's ego in any way, so they're not going to be thinking about me all day. And when you make that insight for yourself, it's a very liberating feeling, and it's a feeling to be more bold as a person. Hmm, makes sense i agree with that did you ever have a certain irrational fear in any part of your life it could be something as scared of swimming or a skill set even i
1: i was scared of scare- swimming so when i was a kid I, in my school they would every once in a while i think once a month they would take us out for a swim and they would take us out to the first We there was a big pool and there were these diving boards and they would take us out to the, to the top floor and the guy would throw us in the pool. Like we would have that like, float <laughs> thing on our back and the guy would just throw us. And I, I was just not scared that. of swimming. But I just wanted to be very unpleasant. You, know, you get that feeling you're going to drown for a few seconds and then the float just carries you up. So I never learned to swim as a kid. I would start skipping those sessions. I would not carry my swimming uniform on purpose. And, you know, I would just skip the swimming session. I learned to swim as an adult. I learned to swim maybe in 2016 or 15, where I was like, okay, I, have to, I was not scared of swimming. I just found I just something I could not do, and I, it was just very unpleasant. So I hired a teacher, and I finally learned. One thing I did have an irrational fear of, just to be more relevant, is dogs. Like as a kid, when I was very small, I had a couple of dogs run behind me, and I just was a bit afraid of dogs for a long time until I was like, why am I afraid of dogs? Like all these other people are not. So I started just petting dogs at random and I realized that they don't do anything. So I'm not scared of dogs now. I still don't like dogs. I don't think they are man's best friend or anything like that, but (laughs) I'm not afraid of them anymore.
0: You just created a lot of enemies with that statement, Harsh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Me. <laughs> if you were my
1: best friend, why would you start barking at us and cheating us if doesn't up?
0: There is a phrase um, for what you described a person who's scared of dogs is known as having Sinophobia. What? Sinophobia. So it starts with C Y N O, then phobia. I know because my older brother, for a large period, was terrified of dogs. And his fear made me scared for a while, too, because anytime we would see a dog, he'd start running. And whenever, <laughs> That's a bad whenever, move. Yeah, dude. Whenever a dog sees you running, it starts chasing you. And I would see this dog uh, running towards me. And now I'm running just as fast as my brother. And for a long time as a little kid, uh, both of us were scared. And I believe the way that we overcame it was kind of like what you did. We would just pet random dogs. And there was a period when I was living in Virginia and my roommate had a dog who I built a bond with. And I was thinking, okay, I, I see what the hype is about.
1: Yeah, I, I don't see the, what the hype is about. I don't get why people have dogs, but I'm not afraid of them anymore. Like, this does not add up that people would want this animal in their house with them. Does not yeah. add up to me. It's very interesting so, that you mentioned this, that the running away thing. I find that even humans do this. And I will tell you why I think that. In the lockdown, I was recently visiting a friend of mine. And since it was locked on, everything was closed. So I was just at his house. And just to pass some time and to enjoy ourselves, he, he watches something called YouTube pranks. Like, so YouTube has this thing where apparently all these kids will just go out and attack each other at random, like, they will take a drink from someone's hands and throw it around or something, and there'll be a guy sitting, and this guy will pull this person's chair and then run away. Yeah, dude. So he was showing me these YouTube pranks just for entertainment. I was like, "This is horrible! Like, why would, why would they do that? Like, this is like ruining someone's day, isn't it? Like, you take someone's drink and you throw it away, you pull them out of the chair. Like, this is assault. Like, this is a crime. But fair. But what I noticed is that every time someone gets attacked like this they are initially in shock and they just stare at the person who did it okay it's only when the person who did it he starts running away that these people will chase him and often these pranks like this at least i only watched this prank thing for like that day with his, with my friend and one of these pranks was something like do you want a kiss and then he would give him a chocolate or something like some, there's a chocolate that goes by the name of kiss i think so he would be like, do you want a kiss? And this guy would like, I don't want a kiss. And then he would like give him that chocolate. Right. And there was some scenes in that thing where this is not, this is not something you would attack someone over. But if you do that, like, let's say you do the chocolate thing and you make fun of him like this, and then you just walk away normally. Then the other person would be like, he would just walk away too. But if you start running, the other person will chase you. And that's something I found very interesting from these prank videos that If you run, the person you just did something to will start chasing you, even though it does not make any sense to chase you. Just because someone made this kiss joke with you is not worth attacking someone or chasing someone for. But because they ran, you had this instinct in you and you ran behind them.
0: You're basically thinking, why is this person running for? Let me chase him.
1: Yeah, let me chase him. He must have done something bad. Otherwise, why would he run?
0: And there's another channel, I don't think they post videos anymore, but they're called Hood Pranks. And this is basically when a group of kids go to the toughest parts in the US and they start pulling pranks on these different individuals. And another thing that I noticed in addition to your insight is that when a group of people are doing something, that bugs, that makes them chase them even faster. So let's say I'm doing a prank on you in front of five of your other friends and you're not taking too much offense to it, but your other five friends are taking offense and then I just running, start running and these people start chasing me, automatically you start chasing me as well. So not only does it show that people will chase you if you start running, it also shows that groupthink a- as well. So, I mean, I know you're not a big fan of that kind of stuff. Social you were probably watching it. I think. Yeah, and I find it. I find that kind of stuff. I traditionally watch it when I'm having a very long day. I've been thinking a lot all day, and I just want some form of entertainment where I'm not like having to think anymore. I'm just I could just let my mind shut down. That's when I watch those prank videos, and it teaches you a lot about psychology, because what you were able to spot, I don't think a lot of people are capable of spotting, but that is a psychological insight right there.
1: Interesting. Those pranks are very funny, by the way. I just don't think that, <laughs> you know, If so, I, I I don't think it's a good thing to commercialize this, you know, for, from YouTube's perspective that you're essentially encouraging people to attack each other. Like there's a guy and you're just going and pulling his chair for no reason. What if he has a back injury and then he falls and hurts his back even more? Early? It's kind of a bad thing. And it's it's an asshole move to do to somebody just to make some money on the internet.
0: Oh yeah, some of them get very carried away. Uh, some of these prankers actually pay the people, and that's known as the fake pranks. So whenever someone is getting caught out as doing fake pranks, their account over time just starts to dilute. Why? And nowadays, yeah, nowadays a lot of people the accounts that are seeing a resurgence in this world. Are the ones that do the real pranks, and you could just tell. And an example is uh, My House is Dirty. Uh, you should definitely check out his page. It'll have you dying with laughter. And uh, this is. My
1: house is dirty, what? And I, I catch what you said.
0: My house is dirty. Okay. Uh-huh. So he pulls pranks on people in okay, that's Walmart. Okay.
1: That's the name of the guy.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'll be funny if I was just randomly saying, <laughs> My house is dirty. <laughs> And it's funny because a lot of the times in the actual prank, someone in outrage is like, Who are you? And he'll say, My house is dirty. The guy says, So? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder how
1: come these guys don't end up in jail. Like, if someone did that to me, I would sue them. Like, I would at least file up a police complaint. Like, you, if someone like took my drink, threw it in my face, and pulled my chair, like, that guy is not walking away.
0: Yeah, man. I mean, We were talking about this last time, but I see a role for anger in this world where when you don't have any anger and you're being way too nice, I see people taking advantage of you. So do you have that philosophy that sometimes it's okay to put hands on people if someone disrespects you or are you words first? It's a bad
1: idea to do that, even though you want to do it, because if you attack someone, even though it was completely warranted and they go to the police, then you're screwed. So it's best for you to
0: do that first. There's this one, um, there's this one controversy that happened a couple of years back. And it's basically where this fan threw, uh, this fan is basically just shoving his camera in this athlete's face and just like talking a bunch of crap at him. And the athlete just smacks the phone out of his hand. And the fan is like, how could you? Oh no. And he's like crying a victim to the security guard and the security guard had the funniest reaction. He's like, Good, I would have done worse to you.
1: <laughs> the really athlete funny. could have ended up in jail for it. If this Oh yeah, person dude. he had got gone. suspended. He didn't. he did, okay. No, but he, he got, got suspended dude. Suspending is more of a private thing, like his maybe his employer fired him or whatever, but if this person had filed a police complaint that he got assaulted, things would not have gone well for this athlete
0: especially the higher status that you become, the more that you have to be mindful of this sort of behavior where even if you do want to put hands on someone, just know that there are lawsuits coming. So that's a good perspective. It's a balanced perspective as well that you just gave.
1: Well, there are lawsuits coming. It's just that, see, there are are things you can do in self-defense and there are ways you can get away with it. It's just that, If someone punches you in the face, you can hurt him more by going to the police than by punching him back. Mm -hmm. If you punch him back, it's going to hurt his nose for maybe a few hours. You go to the police, you file a proper case and, you know, get a lawyer. Then you can mess with this person for months and years. So (laughs) your punch is essentially harder by not
0: punching him. There's ripple effects. My philosophy is that anger is warranted. However, restraint needs to be put with the hands. If you're going to put hands on someone, in my opinion, you better truly consider what's going to happen because it's one thing if you're self-defending yourself, but if you're just putting hands on someone because they called you a mean name, then that one move can hurt your life for a long, long time. So be extremely mindful because emotions come and go, but the consequences can come and stay. Yet... I do think that every guy should at least be able to defend himself. And that's why early on, you know, I got my uh, little black belt in karate. Uh, Do you do any form of martial arts, boxing, any sort of training?
1: I learned karate for some years, although I found karate to be mostly useless when it comes to actual real use because it's more like it's too structured and unrealistic. I did. I, I did learn boxing right before the lockdown for some time, and I found that to be far more useful in a more realistic situation.
0: Because when you're f- fighting and you're just the traditional person who's not a trained fighter who gets paid for it, boxing will do. Uh, did you learn shadow boxing or uh, what kind of boxing was it? Did you spar?
1: Yeah, I sparred. I got bloodied a little bit. I had like, blood everywhere once. <laughs> but yeah, it was, <laughs> it was regular boxing, I, not shadow boxing. Or fake boxing or whatever. It was kickboxing, I think, and the guy did teach me how to kick, and he taught me how to spar a bit. But I I only had like maybe ten. I only learned for like two three months right right before the lockdown, and then the lockdown started, and then I could not learn anymore.
0: That's one thing that I'm very grateful for, Harsh. That you and I, we do something that requires the mind, where we're capable of thinking, and I know you're not a big sports follower, but there's been a lot of shocking news coming out of uh, American football, where a lot of individuals are having CTE, and it's making them go crazy. What uh, there was this CTE. I, I don't know the exact definition, like the what the letters stand for, but it basically means brain damage. That's the general thing that I know, and Wait, it causes. If I had to
1: guess it would be like concussion, traumatic event, or something like that.
0: Here, let me just Google it real quick.
1: And American football is the drug beer like export, isn't it? Just to clarify.
0: Yes. So it's called chronic traumatic. Man, I'm gonna take my shot at saying the second, the third one. C T E. What did you say? So American. C-T-E.
1: Is it like uh, Muhammad Ali had Parkinson's because he got beat up? He got too many headshots like too many people hit him in the head Uh, ah yes i'm
0: looking i know what this is yes i'm looking at the description it seems very similar it's a progressive and fatal brain disease associated with repeated Repeated traumatic heads yes this is
1: what a lot of boxers have like they get punched so much they their brain starts getting damaged a lot
0: and there was this one football player who was on the joe rogan podcast and he was just talking about his day-to-day life where when he's going about his day, his shoulder randomly pops out of his socket, and he has to put it back in. And then he just gets headaches. He has nightmares. And I'm thinking, dang, man, what some people do to make money. I mean, they love the game of American football. But I'm just grateful, man, that I don't have to put my body in that sort of of a battlefield in order to make a paycheck.
1: I don't think they do it for the money. Like, they Of course, they need the money, but I think it has well, more... It's for t- love. Maybe, but yeah, sure, for love. But, you know, it isn't so bad. If you go, say, 200 years ago, before we had guns, like, not 200, but like, many years ago, it was completely normal for people to learn how to fight with a sword and actually go to war. So compared to that, this is a very trivial thing like this is a very safe thing versus the actual sword fights mhm i have this experienced the- this once though like i when i was boxing once i did get punched in the head and i just could not think properly for a day like i was just very not there completely
0: mhm and i was playing rugby one time with a few of my friends and this big dude he picks me up and he slams me on the ground and for a while everything was just spinning and spinning and i'm thinking man people actually get paid for this i give them props my grind though is trying to use my mind to the best of the abilities because you know i play you know i play sports i consider these sports as a great way to not only socialize but in order to you know stay athletic in shape but you know that's just not something that i do uh like basically like combat sports and try to get paid for that are are you a big fan of henry ford
1: the car manufacturer
0: yeah cuz i remember last time i believe you started talking about uh, john rockefeller yes um so henry ford was another great billionaire around that time and he talks about thinking is one of the hardest jobs out there that's why so people few, few people do it and just the process of thinking is not easy. So I have a friend who played college basketball and he just said, man, if you ever made me do any of these thinking projects, writing a book, something like that, I would hate it. So it's just paradigms. So the way that I'm thinking about you know, combat sports, they probably think about that regarding something that you and I do, such as writing.
1: Mm, makes sense. Yes, I got it. You know, when I was I just... working at the, the bigger companies, for, when I was working for other people, I would often have to say, could essentially take documents, sit in a cab for three hours doing nothing and just transport the document at some other place. And I had gotten to actually like doing that. I would actually look forward to sitting in a cab and doing nothing for three hours. And... You just get used to doing what you do and it becomes less relatable to you what other people are doing. So for maybe for a sportsman, for him playing that sport is completely normal, but what you're doing sounds hard because he can't do it. And the same applies to you.
0: Yes, because last time after me and you got done recording this podcast, I got two DMs where someone's like, man, I don't know how you and Life Math Money spoke for two hours plus. That must have been so difficult for you guys. And I don't know about for you, if it's difficult for you, but these are just effortless for me. Yes. Right? And it's, it's just funny because, yeah, but from their perspective, they're like, man, you guys were just dropping so many uh, knowledge. I mean, that must have been hard for you guys. I'm thinking, no, not really. <laughs> Was it hard for you?
1: No. It would be hard if we were, you know, actually focusing on dropping knowledge, but we're just having a conversation about our experiences in life and it's just knowledge for other people.
0: And this connects with your point where what one person considers easy, another person can consider work and vice versa.
1: What one person considers play is what someone else would consider work.
0: And finding that play is is a great competitive advantage because that action just starts to flow out of you rather than being pushed out of you.
1: Agree. You cannot be exceptional at something that you have no passion for. And you can become very good at something that you don't have passion for, but you cannot be exceptional because th- there's, a, there's something different about having a drive to want to do something versus doing something just to get paid for it.
0: Harsh, I could be speaking with you for another hour and I'm sure people will like that, but we both got stuff to do and it's been an eventful conversation already. So how about we wrap it up and we get another conversation going down the line. Uh, Anything else you want to say? No, man, sounds good. Let's speak
1: again in the future. By the way, for everyone listening, let me see this for Armani. Click the subscribe button for him and click the like button. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and see you guys next time.
0: For sure. And I'm going to be including all of Life Math Money's socials in the description box right on below. If you don't follow him, you're missing out. So go on and follow him as well. Until next time, my friend.
1: All right, have a good day everyone. See you.